We tell all sorts of delightful stories about Rolling Thunder's sex life in our book, The Voice <laughs> of Rolling Thunder. And unlike people from other traditions, shamans don't turn their back on sex. They might abstain for a while when they're going through a period of purification, but for the most part, they're very lusty, very, very healthy, and the Native American shamans also refer, often refer to sex as elk power. listeners you're about to hear a very special episode of a special road trip tangentially driving we should call it uh episode of uh, the podcast here's what happened i did the joe rogan thing a couple of months ago and uh in the course of our three-hour epic conversation i told joe a few stories about my former professor in grad school, now very close friend, Stanley Krippner. And after the podcast was over, Joe and I were hanging out and he said, man, that guy Stanley sounds fascinating. Is there any way I can meet him? And I said, well, yeah, you know, and I, actually I was thinking Stanley and Joe would be a very interesting uh, couple of guys to, to see hanging out because it's hard to imagine two people more different in a way, you know, Stanley's 80, uh, <laughs> not what you would call uh, an alpha male macho, a hard, hard guy in any respect. Um, but, uh, you know, Joe, Joe has a heart of gold, as I've come to see, and is super smart and very open minded. And it just so happens that these two people share a lot of very deep, sincere passion for knowledge and for certain kinds of knowledge, which is knowledge at the cutting edge, but not bullshit. You know, they're both interested in challenging the dominant paradigm of what reality is and what's possible and, you know, what stories were being told about the past and so on and so forth. But they're serious people. They're, they're very rational thinkers. So they don't want to hear a bunch of woo woo, you know, bohemian bullshit with, uh, incense and crystals and the secret, you know, think about being rich and you'll fucking be rich. So they're, they're really interesting people. Anyway, so Stanley agreed to come down to San Francisco. I mean, down to LA, uh, to, to do Joe's podcast. And, I made up some bullshit excuse about having to have meetings in San Francisco, really just so that I would have the pleasure of driving down with Stanley. Uh, I've done a lot of driving with Stanley over the years, mainly because he doesn't drive and we've traveled all over the world together. 
My God, Casilda's here with me now. One of the greatest things Stanley's given me is Casilda. I met her at a conference that I was at with Stanley in uh, Peniche, Portugal, back in 99. 99, yeah. Uh, anyway, so Stanley is an amazing guy, and we've driven all over the world together. I was going to say how many countries we've been in. Oh, my God. Argentina, Mexico, Venezuela. I was supposed to go to Chile with him, but missed the flight. That didn't happen. Uh, France. Oh, my God. The, the Lascaux Caves in France. Brazil was the first trip. India. Morocco, where we were investigating um, Arabic mysticism. <laughs> All sorts of adventures. Uh, Germany, where we were at a shamanism conference at a ski resort uh it was in spring though there wasn't snowy it was you know off season but that was pretty trippy to be in this little bavarian village with you know it was one of those typical places where they wear those pants that like only go below their knee and then they wear the big socks and they've got the feathers in their hats you know it's like pippy long stocking or some shit like that anyway we're in that super conservative little german Al alpine you know bavarian village and there are these shaman from all over the world like these dudes with bones through their noses and eagle feathers in their hairs and you know it was really a scene i wish i'd taken a bunch of pictures but i was just too immersed in the experience to to realize how crazy it was you know which happens a lot with stanley uh i remember when we first landed in brazil and that first trip, I didn't really, I mean, I knew he was famous, but I didn't realize that he was world famous. And we got off the, the plane in uh, Puerto Alegre and there were like 40 people waiting in the airport just to, you know, talk to him or have him sign an autograph, a book, whatever. He's more famous in places like Brazil, Russia, he goes to China every year, more so than in the States, really. He often laughs. He says, you know, the place in the world where he's least well-known is the Bay Area, where he's lived for 25 years. Like Rodriguez. Like oh, <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, we just saw this movie, uh, Searching for Sugar Man. That's a good point. I never thought of that. Yeah, it's like Rodriguez. If you haven't seen that movie, Searching for Sugar Man, Get it, download it, you know, Netflix it, whatever you need to do. It's a really good movie. Anyway, listen, let's let's do some business. Thank you to Carsey Blanton for the theme song. Uh, that's a great song, which we've been using on the podcast. And there, if you're interested in Carsey's music, uh, you can look in the archives because we did a I did a whole episode with her where she plays a couple of tunes live and talks about what it's like to be the great Carsty Blanton open for Paul Simon on tour and all sorts of crazy family stuff. Very interesting. Uh, we are standing in front of a big pile of beautiful Sex Dawn T-shirts that we're looking at right now uh, that you can check out. Uh, I think by the time you hear this, I'm not sure if my new website will be live or not, but if not, check back in a week or so. I'll, I'll keep reminding you I'm doing a website, chrisryanphd.com, where we'll have a product page and you can order directly through the website. In the meantime, if you want one of these T-shirts, you can take a look at them. Where do we have a picture of them now? I no, 
Yeah, yeah. I posted about it on Facebook and Twitter. I put up some images. Um, but you can always send me an email and I'll send you an image uh, or uh, just wait a week or so until we get the new website up because they're beautiful, beautiful design. They're, anyway, the shirts are made by Sure Design T-shirts. So if you got any interest in getting some T-shirts, check them out. I can tell you the dude who owns Sure Design T-shirts, he's in Thailand in Chiang Mai. Super cool guy. We had a deal where I was going to pay for the shipping on all these shirts from Thailand. Uh, this morning, he tweeted something about uh, some people who had been some refugees from Laos. I know Burma, who um, there'd been a fire and this kid ran in and saved lots of people. He was out of the fire and he ran back in, dragged people out of the fire. And he's like 13, 14 years old, something like that. And he ended up with burns over half his body. He's in the hospital. He's got a 50-50 chance of survival. And um, so anyway, I, I sent an email to... Um, to the owner whose name I'm not remembering right now, um, but he's the owner of Sure Design T-shirts, SureDesignT-shirts.com, and uh, I said, uh, "Hey, you know, I saw that tweet. Uh, you know, uh, why don't just um, add fifty bucks to what I owe you, so you can, you know, give it to the hospital because you're right there, and uh, and then let me know how to send uh, the money I owe you. You know, if the accounts or whatever." And he just said, "Ah, forget, forget. Don't worry about it. You know." The money. He's like, just, just forget it. He's he's a really cool guy, really nice guy. So of course, then we you know quadrupled it and, and said, okay, then we're just going to send all this money to the hospital. So so he's the kind of guy who doesn't give a shit about money. He gives a shit about doing good stuff. And uh, you can definitely tell when you look at these t-shirts, they're soft and stretchy, and the women's look really sexy. Yeah, the men's, I don't know. You're on your own, fellas. Um, and their design, the design is really cool. Is there's this image on the front with this redheaded woman with long flowing hair lying naked uh, against a green background reading a copy of Sex at Dawn. And then under it, there's a rising sun and it says Lux Eterna, I guess Latin, which is uh, eternal light. And the story with that is we had this thing where people started sending us pictures of themselves naked with our book. And uh, one of the pictures was this redhead, beautiful redheaded woman lying in green grass in Portland. And uh, I guess the picture was taken by her boyfriend. And then her boyfriend, who's a, a designer, uh, made a painting based on that photograph. And someone saw the painting in a gallery and sent me a copy of this beautiful painting. And so I, you know, whatever, I started talking. They sent an email to the artist. Hey, Chris Ryan likes this painting. And so he, Levy Greenacres is his name. He and I started chatting. And I said, dude, could we possibly use that image to make some T-shirts? And sure, why not? And so Levy and I have been in touch since then. So you can check out Levy's work. It's at levygreenacres.com. That's L-E-V-I Green as in green acres a-c-r-e-s dot com he's just done a new book called mommy's new tattoo which is <laughs> a pretty cool book right all right um and you can check out uh feralaudio.com of course this podcast is available there and at itunes if you download it on itunes or you have an itunes account please leave us a rating and some comments i'm told that's a good thing to do on itunes 
and say hi, Kisil. Hi, everybody. Hi there. Hi, the world. <laughs> hi, the world. <laughs> Some people actually don't think Casilda exists. They think that my publisher and I made her up. I'm, I'm weird, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you may be weird, but you I'm exist. <laughs> You're an alien. Casilda speaks six languages, sometimes all of them in one sentence. So she doesn't do a lot of interviews in English, which I can certainly understand. I hate doing interviews in Spanish, even though I lived there 20 years. But your English is way better than my Spanish. Anyway, so leave us a comment at iTunes if you can. You can always contribute to the podcast by clicking on our Amazon page, our Amazon thing uh, button, uh, which is at sexatdawn.com. Right now, there's a thing where it says buy the book. You can click on that. That'll take you to Amazon. And then anything you buy at Amazon, we get a cut. We'll get like 3% or something to support the podcast, even though it doesn't cost you any extra money. So that's cool. It's just a way of leveraging Amazon to give us some of their money, which is really wonderful. If you go to feralaudio.com, F-E-R-A-L audio.com, check out some of the other podcasts they've got there, particularly the Duncan Trussell Family Hour. Yeah, you like that one too? Duncan's the one who started this whole podcasting mess for me. <laughs> yeah, for which I'm eternally grateful. It's a wonderful way to hang out with cool people. Tomorrow, I'm going to be going to interview my 10-year-old cousin, second cousin or whatever he is, cousin once removed. I don't know, my cousin's kid, whatever that is. So that'll be an interesting little episode. So that's it. I think I've covered all the sponsorship. Cassie said hi, told you about the T-shirts. You can send me an email at chrisryanphd at gmail.com that's my personal email um yeah if you want a picture of the t-shirts or whatever until we get them up on the website all right hope you enjoy this episode it's it's a very special one to me i've spent a lot of hours driving around with stanley wishing i had a way to record our conversations morocco france germany all these places we've driven around and he was telling me these amazing stories about people he's known and things he's experienced in his 80 years on this planet. And uh, finally, this time around, thanks to Duncan, I guess, indirectly, I had a recorder and some microphones and the two of us spent about two and a half hours driving down Route 5 with microphones. People driving by thought we were doing karaoke in the car, I'm sure. I don't know what the hell they thought. <laughs> All right, thanks. That's the longest intro I've ever done. Okay. You want to sing? Cassie, Cassie fantasizes about being a singer. Yeah. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Another life. Another life. Okay. All right. Thanks. Hope you enjoy this episode. I wonder how many times you've been had and I wonder how many plans have gone bad. I wonder how many times you had sex and I Welcome to a special road trip edition of Tangentially Speaking. This is a very special edition. Uh, we're just pulling out of a rest stop here, about to get on Route 5 South, headed to Los Angeles. 
Oh, and there's a big snake on the road. Did you see that? Um, I'm with uh, Professor Dr. Stanley Krippner for a special repeat podcast with Stanley. If you heard the first episode, uh, which we recorded probably three or four months ago, you'll know that Stanley's uh, an old dear friend of mine who I met uh, when I was in graduate school at Saybrook Graduate School in San Francisco. Stanley's one of the star professors there. Uh, We met over breakfast one morning, as I recall, and then uh, you invited me to come with you on a trip to Brazil. And we spent a lot of time together on that trip in Brazil, in Porto Alegre. Where, Where did we go on that trip? Actually, we were in Rio de Janeiro, Right. And we were also in Salvador, Bahia. Salvador de Bahia, that's right. And and Porto Alegre, we started down and there and worked our way And we down south up. to Porto Alegre, so we saw three very, very different parts of Brazil. Yeah, yeah, that was great. And then over the years, when I was in graduate school, Stanley invited me to... Uh, to accompany him on on trips in various parts of the world because you're you're getting invited to travel all over the place constantly and so he would just say well my assistant has to come and so <laughs> managed to get me invited to oh i don't know 15 well, we 20 different countries algeria we went to the last coal caves in france the last cave oh that India. was amazing yeah, India. Twice, I think we've been in India, Venezuela. Oh, we Mexico. went to the Congress in Venezuela. That's true. Uh, the shamanism conference in Germany in that right. ski resort in Germany. That was a strange thing. In uh, Bavaria, seeing all these shamans from all our, it's shamans or shamans. What? How, what is the either plur- pronunciation is acceptable? Oh, okay. You can even say shamans. Shamans. You know, from it's a- one of those words. It's not an English word, so that means you can twist it around any way you want, and it still is a. Uh, proper and understandable. You can even say shamans, which Ah, I don't use. I think that's a little bit pretentious. But the point is that this word is sort of a social construct. It's cobbled together from some terminology from Siberia and both from the Yakut tribe and the Baryut tribe. And one translation is singer of songs. One translation is inner heat. One translation is flying to the sky. And the interesting thing is all three of those apply to shamans because the shamans supposedly rouse the inner fire to heal people. They go out of the body into the upper world or the lower world and they sing songs, you know, narrative, myth, dance, songs. That's part of the shamanic repertoire. Well, one of the many things that Stanley is uh, expert in is shamanism, obviously. So let's talk about that for for a little while. I know a lot of a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are interested in in altered states of consciousness and and that sort of stuff. Um, you, you mentioned the upper world and the lower world, which, as I understand it, in the shamanic cosmology those aren't it's not heaven and hell it's not a positive and a negative they're just two other realms uh, in which these shaman are able one of the you mentioned different translations one that I often think of is someone who moves who's capable of moving between worlds someone who can shift them their their consciousness between these different worlds is that a is that something that's common in many different 
shamanic traditions that there are three realms and we're in the middle realm? Oh, yes. You see, anthropologists use the Siberian word shaman to apply to practitioners in various indigenous cultures because they all did very, very similar things. Um, the writer and ethnologist, Marcel Eliad, called them technicians of the sacred. And I often refer to shamanism as a spiritual technology. And part of that technology is knowing how to navigate between different states of consciousness, different aspects of reality. And one thing that's common to shamans is traveling to different worlds. And many traditions, yes, there's an upper world and a lower world and Middle Earth. But then some of those traditions have seven different worlds, seven different realities that they travel to. This isn't as bizarre as you might think because we have some physicists who talk about multiple universes and there are different universes that coexist at the same time. So why shouldn't the shamans be able to take trips into some of these hypothetical or actual universes in search of knowledge and power to serve their community? This is the one unifying theme of shamanism. The shamanisms are there, they use their technology, they use their skills to get knowledge, power, and information that can help members of their community live better, live longer, live healthier, and to do better in their world. Now, what, do you, what if any, do you see as the connection between psychosis or schizophrenia and the shamanic experience. Back when I first studied shamanism back in the 1950s and 1960s, the leading psychiatrists of that time who knew anything at all about shamanism considered them schizophrenic or manic depressive or pathological in some way or another. But this was before the psychologists came in and started to study them and gave them psychological tests. Now, can you imagine an indigenous shaman taking a psychological test? Well, shamans are very collaborative, very cooperative. Uh. And some of these tests, like the Rorschach inkblot test, for example, or different picture tests where they interpret what's in a picture, are supposed to be cross-cultural. And so if a person is pathological, they will project their pathology into the tests. Well, the psychologists came out with some very surprising findings. They found that the shamans were actually the best functioning people in the community. Really? That they had less pathology than other people in the community. Huh. That they were imaginative, that they were much more in touch with their body processes, that they were much more creative, told much more fantastic stories. Sometimes they took ink blots and they linked the blots together to tell a continual story. So that is one thing that began to change people's opinions on shamans from the academic point of view. And then there were a group of anthropologists who were not buying into the psychoanalytic interpretation, who actually didn't just study the shamans, they lived with shamans. And they saw what the shamans were actually doing in the community. Some of the anthropologists actually took training. They took lessons from the shamans so that they could study shamanism from the inside out rather than from the outside in. And they began to learn things that 
anthropologists had never, never learned before. And I'm in touch with some of these anthropologists, and a few of them have actually been ordained as shamans and are considered shamans by the shamans themselves because they've had a great deal of training. Not that they set up a shingle and label themselves as shamans, but this gives them special authority in what they write and in what they speak to researchers about and speak to their classes about. I suppose Michael Harner is the best known of those right. anthropologists. The Shaman's Drum, right? Was that yes, his book? Yes, yeah. that was his magazine. He was helpful oh, in magazine, setting up that right. magazine. His book was The Way of the Shaman. That's it, The Way of the Shaman, yeah. And what Michael Harner did was to actually go through the study and the initiation of the Hivaro tribe in Ecuador. Right. And so you could consider him a Western shaman who's been trained in shamanic traditions. He and his wife, several years ago, set up the Foundation for Shamanic Studies, and they have actually gotten funding to go around the world, especially to countries who have lost touch with their shamanic roots and have gotten people who still remember what the shamans did or who were shamans themselves and sort of bring shamanism back into the community, back into the tribe. They've done this with the Finno-Uyghuric shamans in Finland, for example. Finland had a long tradition of shamanism, sort of disappeared during the Second World War, but now it's back in style again. Hmm. They did this in Siberia. The communists, of course, wouldn't have anything to do with shamanism. They killed off the shamans because they were a threat to Marxism and dialectical materialism. Oh, right. The they, shamans who survived simply buried their drums. And right. then... Sort of like the, the North American shamans with the, the conquistadors and the... The mushroom traditions. Oh, the, the, and, and uh, the conquistadors were terrible, the shamans in yeah. North and South America. They actually burned them at the stake. The yeah. Inquisition got in and declared them heretics and working with the devil and all of that nonsense. And so shamans had a, a very hard time with authoritarians, whether authoritarian groups are with the conquistadores and the Inquisition or whether they're with the Marxists and the communists. Because shamanism is a very open-ended system. System. It picks and chooses from anything that will help people. Right. It's not a religion. Religions, by and large, are very dogmatic, very authoritarian. You follow the rules or you get kicked out of the religion. Shamanism will borrow from anything, including one's neighbors, including Western influences, that will seem to help people. I uh, We just pulled off Route 5. We're at a... A little rest area because I need to get a battery for this machine. I would hate for us to lose this because the battery runs out. Fine, we'll so resume later. We're going to take a, a brief break. back we've just stopped at the uh, country country fresh store where we bought some fresh batteries and now we're getting back on route five heading south to los angeles i didn't mention why i'm uh with stanley in the car heading to los angeles but the reason is that uh, a few two months ago or so i did uh, my first podcast with joe rogan and during the podcast, 
I mentioned Stanley and some of the books he's written and the people he's known over the years and crazy experiences that uh, Stanley's told me about. And after the podcast, uh, Joe Rogan said, hey, is there any way I can meet this guy, Stanley? Where does he live? What's, you know, how can I connect with him? Because Joe's a... Well, most of the people who've heard this podcast probably know who Joe is. He's a very smart, interesting, open-minded guy who's uh, uh, very hungry for knowledge. So when he heard about Stanley, he wanted to meet him. So I got in touch with Stanley, and we worked it out that I could come up to San Francisco, and uh, we drive down together. And so Stanley's going to be doing Joe Rogan's podcast tomorrow morning, which will go out live. So you'll hear Stanley on Joe Rogan uh, long before you hear this. Um, But if you didn't hear it, look in the archives of uh, the Joe Rogan experience and look for the episode with Stanley Krippner. I think it's 345 or so, something like that, but you'll find it. Anyway, go ahead. And I will try not to repeat what I will be talking about with Joe Rogan. Oh, don't worry about that. Joe Joe has like around a million listeners. Oh, good heavens. And uh, at this point, I've got 10,000 or so. So, Well, I'm, good. Then I can tell both groups about my newest book, The Voice of Rolling Thunder, which covers a lot of things about shamanism that you will be hearing on this podcast. And I wrote this book with Sidian Morningstar, who's Native American grandson of Rolling Thunder, the famous Native American medicine man who was active back in the 1960s and 1970s and who I knew, worked with, and kept in contact with until he passed over at an advanced age. And he is one of the people who taught me the most about Native American traditions and about rituals and ceremonies and about the very advanced medicines that Native Americans were using before the European colonists arrived with their leeches and their bloodletting and their very (laughs) primitive ways of helping people get well that killed off more people than they helped. How, How did you meet Rolling Thunder and when was that? I met Rolling Thunder back in the 1960s, early 1960s, because I was invited to hear a concert by Ravi Shankar, who was accompanied by Alaraka, the famed tabla player. And Alaraka was happily married in India, but like so many artists around the world, he had girlfriends here and there. And his American girlfriend was having a party for Alaraka. And I was invited to the party. It was a great honor to meet Alaraka because I admired his artistry and his work I had for many, many years. And Ravi Shankar. Was, was he world famous at that point? He was world famous at that time. It was a full house and the music, of course, is beautiful. Ravi Shankar, of course, was active up to his death a few years ago. And right. Didn't he play with the Beatles? Is that what really shot him to fame? He played with John Har- with, with George Harrison. Right. And that is what made him more famous than all of his excellent records and all of his decades of concert experiences. It's interesting how people really hit the limelight. And sometimes it's through some accidental juxtaposition 
of influences like Ravi Shankar and George Harrison, who then learned how to play the sitar, at right. least in a rudimentary way. Yeah, and for, for people who don't know who Ravi Shankar was, he was the best-known sitar player in the world. Probably still, there's no better-known sitar player, which is a Indian stringed instrument. And you probably know his daughter, Nora Jones, who's uh, now, she's quite famous singer. Oh, yeah, she's a marvelous singer. Also, also Ravi Shankar did an album, Yehudi Menu, and the Classical Violinist. And I have oh, that album, right. and it's a beautiful album. It's surprising how they were able to take sitar music and violin music and combine them in a marvelous improvisation. Well, I interrupted you. So you're talking about this party where, where Ravi Shankar is playing with the tabla player, and this was where, in New York? Yes, in New York City. And uh -huh. so Ala Raka's girlfriend said, by the way, there's going to be a drummer coming in tonight who's a student of Ala Raka, and he has some questions he'd like to ask you about hypnosis. And I said, fine, I'll be happy to talk with him. And so in the middle of the party, in comes this very dramatic musician with a black ponytail dressed in a black and white harlequin suit and he didn't want to meet anybody else at the party except for Alaraka, his teacher and he was really eager to have a very intense conversation with me so off we went to the bedroom and i'm sure half the people thought we were going over there to have a romance <laughs> and instead we were dealing with very technical information about hypnosis uh -huh. because he had been using hypnosis with his students so this now, is you alaraka and this this no, musician alaraka's student oh just the, the student and yes, you right yes so at the end of our conversation the musician very apologetically said uh by the way do you ever go to rock concerts and I said yes I love rock music I just went to hear the Grateful Dead two nights ago and he beamed from ear to ear then you heard me play well that was Mickey Hart the multi-percussionist and one of the two drummers for the Grateful Dead and Mickey and I have been friends all of these years so you didn't recognize him when you met him no I was <laughs> sitting in the cheap seats and so I did not recognize him uh, when I met him. Well, that was the last time you sat in the chief seats at a Grateful Dead concert, as I understand it. Yes, from that time on, I was always backstage. Right. And sometimes on the stage, right in back of the uh, drumming section, which was uh, Mickey Hart and Billy Kreutzmann, who I also got to know. And, of course, that's all another story. Wow. So what's it like to sit behind the drum set at a Grateful Dead show, so you're looking out at the crowd. You've got the musician's perspective on the experience. Yes, it's very interesting to see these very, very talented musicians at work and how they play off against each other. And I actually, seeing that Mickey was so interested in hypnosis, agreed to do some hypnosis sessions with him and Bill Kreutzmann. During a performance? Or? No, no, during a rehearsal. No. And just the two of them in Mickey's studio has it all recorded, all of our hypnosis work together. And he and Billy got together, arm around each other as one organism, and I hypnotized and I told them that they were one beautiful organism creating beautiful music, and they claimed that those sessions really helped them refine their work with the entire Grateful Dead. Huh. I also told them that time was slowing down and that uh, oh, right. one 
minute of ordinary time would now seem like one hour of hypnosis time. And then later I said, now we're going to switch. One minute of ordinary time will be one second of hypnosis time. And that's all on tape. And of course, the contrast is dramatic in how they immediately switch tempo and switch style. And then I had them imagine that everything in the room was turning blue and that their music was all going to be played to the tune of blue, like what we call synesthesia. Why did you choose blue? Because blue is my favorite color. Oh. <laughs> but I don't play favorites. I had them switch to red. <laughs> and then I had them switch to green. Really? Yeah, so... So they're uh, playing during the hypnosis session. They are playing during the hypnosis session. It's just the three of you in the studio. That's right. Wow, that must have been amazing. Yes, Mickey has all of those tapes in his vault. I hope he releases them sometime because I think they're a little bit historic. So were they they're wearing uh, headsets and you're speaking into a microphone or something? We didn't need headsets because I was so close to them. Ah, uh, you're just between the two of them. I was between yeah. the two of them, except when they were joined together arm in arm. Right. And I sort of stepped to the back. Yeah, we did a variety of things. Wow. When they were joined together arm in arm, did they play with their free yes, hands? Yes, they really? did. They oh, did. my God. They were God. able to play with their free hands. Oh, right, 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 right. That must be... That's, that's fascinating. To, I mean, I... I've seen pianists do that, where one person plays the left hand and the other on the right. I don't That's think right. I've ever seen nope, this time that drummers percussion. Yeah. Well, again, you have to realize that the members of the Grateful Dead, by and large, were extremely talented musicians. Right. A few of them had classical music training. Mickey not only had orthodox drum training, but when he was in Spain, he went off and played with the gypsies and learned drumming from them. Right. He studied with Alaraca. He not only played all the percussion instruments, but he was a pretty good violinist as well. Really? Oh. And and guitar player. So he could do his work on string instruments and, and the piano. Very, very talented. Of course, he still is. And now he's branched out. He does painting. He does sculpture. He did the musical score for ballet, which was marvelous, which I saw in San Francisco. He's doing an orchestral suite, and he has his own group, a group that I heard just a few weeks ago in, in uh, Berkeley, California. And it is not only percussion, but they have a vocalist, they have a pianist, and they produce their own very, very unique sound, which is a distillation of what Mickey has learned in his cross-cultural studies yeah. of percussion music all around the world. He's done a lot of that. I, I had one of his uh, records called Planet Drum, I think, where different he was working in different cultural contexts with different musicians. Uh, I think it was mostly African, but That's different right. parts of Africa. That's right. I've met many of the African drummers. He also has a book out called Planet Drum. He's yeah, you're right. Books. There's a book that went with that. That's right. And yeah. he has an album called Rolling Thunder, his first solo album. Right. This was all leading to how you met Rolling Thunder. So That's right. That was through the Grateful Dead then? It was actually through Mickey Hart, because I was in New York at the time doing my dream research at Maimonides Medical Center. And Which about, is where Charles Grobe worked for you as a, what, a high school student or something. Yes, he was a volunteer, a very, very bright one. And right. he, uh, 
and I became good friends, and his father was a psychiatrist. That's right. And, and by the way, just to, sorry to interrupt you, but for, so our listeners know, if you look in the archives of Tangentially Speaking, you'll see uh, an episode that I recorded with Charles Grobe just a few weeks ago, where he recounts those uh, those days working with you, and, and also talks about his father. Did, do you know? You might not remember the story that uh, Charles was not sure what he wanted to do for a living and his father said to him look you'll know when it comes to you you'll know and I want you to call me any time of the day or night when you know I want you to call me and he was working in your lab one night uh, you know monitoring the the sleepers who were right. you were doing the the telepathy the dream telepathy research and he was going through your library that you had in the office there and he, I don't remember what book, if it was a particular book, but he had the sudden realization that he wanted to study consciousness, altered states of consciousness, and that was it, and that was the passion of his life. He called his father at four o'clock in the morning and woke him up to tell him because his father had said, I want you to call me whenever it is. So that was he. That was the epiphany that determined his entire trajectory of his life. There, yes, had. it was actually a, a, an edited book by a psychologist by the name of Solomon. Oh, on, you know the book. Yeah, on psychedelic experience. It was, I think, probably the first anthology of its type, and. Charles was fascinated by it, and now, of course, he's one of the two or, lead, two or three leading psychedelic researchers in the world. Yeah, he's doing fantastic work at UCLA with, uh, well, I guess the latest uh, research was using psilocybin in therapy with people at end-stage cancer That's to help right. them deal with the anxiety of death. Yes, but he's also done field research in Brazil with a native drug called ayahuasca right. doing long-term studies of people to see if monthly doses of ayahuasca had affected their health in any way and no it hadn't in fact the ayahuasca group was healthier than the people that didn't take ayahuasca right right well anyway i interrupted you so so mickey hart uh well there's no interruption in the program like this we just go with the flow that's why it's I'm called tangentially speaking exactly so it's whenever organic. so whenever i visited california i'd always spend a day or two at mickey's ranch met some interesting people from the rock field met members of mickey's family and also he kept saying sometime you've got to meet rolling thunder this native american medicine man who i met and come to find out about it uh Rolling Thunder had a son who had gone to live in the Haight-Ashbury to find out what hippie living was all about. And he just happened to be living near the headquarters of the Grateful Dead and knew a couple members of the dead. And so when Rolling Thunder came to town, his son introduced Rolling Thunder to the members of the Grateful Dead. All of this is told in great detail in our book, The Voice of Rolling Thunder. We have the whole saga presented uh, as it unfolded. So anyway, one time when I came to visit Mickey, he said, this is the day that you will meet Rolling Thunder. We are going to be giving a gig tonight, trying out some material, new material, under the name Mickey Hart and his Heartbeats. 
So I went to the gig, and of course everybody knew it was the Grateful Dead, but in case the music didn't turn out so well, they could always deny it. <laughs> and there was everybody, you know, Jerry Garcia and Phil Lesh and Bob Weir and Jill Kreisman and Mickey Hart and one of their multiple, uh, per, uh, I think Com Constantine was a pianist at the time. So they were doing their thing, and then during the intermission, down the side of the auditorium, came this handsome, striking, middle-aged Native American man with beads and a cap with an eagle feather in it. And I thought, this must be Rolling Thunder. And the tip-off was he had a beautiful woman on each arm. <laughs> and an eagle feather. And an eagle yeah. feather on his cap. Yeah, right. that's a sure sign. So as he approached me, I went up and I said, you must be Rolling Thunder. He said, and you must be Dr. Krippner. I've heard a lot about you. And I've heard a lot about you, too. So that was the beginning of a beautiful friendship. And after the concert was over, we all went back to Mickey's Ranch and Rolling Thunder with his entourage came. And at the camp were many of Rolling Thunder's spiritual warriors, not only Native Americans, but people from other ethnic groups as well, including a young man who later married Rolling Thunder's daughter and who was the father of Sidney and the Morningstar, wow. the co-author of our book, The Voice of Rolling Thunder. Right. So that's where I met Sidney and Morningstar's father. And they were all standing around a campfire. They were zonked out on LSD and enjoying the campfire. And I think I was the only one that went to bed early and went to bed alone. You didn't, but, you didn't take any LSD on that occasion? No LSD, no women, nothing. I was just happy to be in such a beautiful environment. And right. I went to bed and had a good night's sleep. And I'm glad I did because I got up early the next morning when Rolling Thunder did one of his sunrise ceremonies. And he took us all up into the hill. Half the people were, you know, zonked out or half asleep, but they went anyway. And he lit the fire and he very carefully had gathered the twigs for the fire and then he prayed to the four winds and he did some blessings and some invocations and we saw the sun come up that obviously why it was called the sunrise ceremony and that is the type of invocation that mickey captured on tape and used to open up his first solo album called Rolling Thunder. It starts with Rolling Thunder conducting a sunrise ceremony. Oh. And then later on, Bob Dylan heard a lot about these sunrise ceremonies and he went to Rolling Thunder sunrise ceremonies and he said that Rolling Thunder could have a good seat at any one of his gigs, which Rolling Thunder did. He went to several Bob Dylan concerts. We tell a little about, about his connection with Bob Dylan in the book. Bob Dylan actually had a tour called the Rolling Thunder Review. But you know, we can't find any definite proof that he named that review after Rolling Thunder. Ah, right. Yeah, many people assume that he did, but nobody can really pin that down. Huh. Bob Dylan is such a creative person. He's so well written and so well read that he could have picked up that term from any number of sources. Sure. But nevertheless, that was Rolling Thunder's entry into the world of rock and roll, which for better or for worse, began to bring him to the attention of many, many people. But for the better, 
it allowed him to buy some land with the Grateful Dead's donation in a desert area that he called Metatanti, land of the peaceful people. And young folks and middle-aged folks and even old folks from all over the world gathered there to learn Native American traditions. They were very fortunate because an environmental artist by the name of Christo was building a fence out of mylar plastic in Sonoma County. A beautiful fence. Some friends of mine were appointed guards and they guarded that fence night and day so that people would not steal the plastic. Is this before Christo became very famous? This was after he became very famous. Chris, for people who don't know, Christo was the guy who, what did he do? He draped pink ribbons all over New York City or something. Oh, yes. He's and he done all sorts of... Drapes on the... On the cathedral in Cologne. He has right. draped a lot of the famous monuments around the world. He's an environmental artist, very, right. very talented, very radical, but very talented. Yeah. And the mylar plastic reflected the sun, so it was gold in the middle of the day, and it was white in the evening. It was sort of a pale yellow in the morning, and it was, well, it drew people, of course, from miles around to view this fence during the time that it was up. And then when they had to take it down, some of Rolling Thunder's people asked if they could have part of the fence to use to build structures on Metatanti. Oh. And Crystal very graciously let them take big chunks of the fabric. They took it to Nevada and draped it over a wooden frame. And so when you go to Metatanti, what should you see? But these silver domes, it looked like the flying saucers had landed. Wow. And it was perfect because it kept the heat in in the center, it kept the heat in in the winter, and it kept the heat out in the center. It was a perfect type of fabric for these structures. And that's where Rolling Thunder had his spiritual community for over 10 years. And many of my friends came and stayed there and in our book, The Voice of Rolling Thunder, we give first-person accounts about how those visits to Meditati changed people's lives and how they learned things that they would learn nowhere else and how it taught them about not only about medicine, but about spiritual development, about Native American ways, about history, about relationships, because Rolling Thunder's wife, Spotted Fawn, was the heart of Meditati and she is the one who sort of brokered relationships if somebody wanted to date somebody who was a member of Metatati. They sort of did the arrangements through Spotted Fawn and the uh, arrangements then were monitored sort of by the whole community because you didn't want to get into a relationship where there was a lot of fighting and squabbling that would disrupt the community. So relationships are also not only an individual one-on-one -on -one affair but a community affair there's a different way of looking at relationships than many of the people that had before so people were living there full-time yeah many people were living there full-time others like candice bergen candice and, bergen the actress wow. yes yes and jane fonda were at buckminster fuller were occasional visitors wow did you meet any of those people Actually, I met all three of them, but not at Metatanti. I had dinner with Buckminster Full at her at his house. Wow, what was that like? What was his house like? Was it a it geodesic was a dome? dome? Yes, okay. yes, it was good. in, in good. Illinois, and uh, I, I spent most of a day with him. It was a marvelous experience. Wow. And 
Of course, his last house had two domes on. That's the house where Jean Houston is living in Ashland, Oh, she's still there, right. So let's, for people who don't know who Buckminster Fuller is, was, uh, great, great, one of the great geniuses of the 20th century, certainly. He developed the idea of geosynchronous orbit long before it was technically possible, but he, he predicted it and explained how it would happen. He's completely self-taught, as I understand. Didn't yes, he drop he out of junior high school or something? Or well, maybe? he had to because he was uh, partially sighted and he had cross-eyed and he saw ah, the world differently than other people. Right. And by the time that his vision got corrected and he could do some reading, it was too late. He saw the world in different ways, much right. to his benefit. Yeah. And of course, that led to the geodesic dome and many of his other inventions. Right. Right. So, if you're interested in, in unconstrained genius, check out Buckminster Fuller. I'm sure there's an interesting Wikipedia entry on that. Yeah. Anyway, go, go ahead. So, you, how did you end up at his house? How, how did that connection come about? Well, it came about through my work with the Menninger Foundation because I brought Rolling Thunder to one of the conferences that the Menninger Foundation sponsored every year on Aldred States. They were way ahead of their time in the 1960s and 70s. In fact, they're still hold, holding those conferences. Mm. And they had some of the top people in the world because the Menninger Foundation was a pioneer in biofeedback. Oh, right. And that's, well, Jean Houston came to many of their conferences, and that's one of the places where I met her. Well, Jean Houston is a famous psychic. In... No, no, a famous psychologist, philosopher, and writer. Oh, right, I'm sorry. I'm confusing her with the woman who channels Ramtha, who's in Oregon. That is Jay-Z Knight. Jay-Z Knight, okay, yeah. That's a whole other story. And that's where you met Salma Hayek. Yes, that's correct. And did not introduce me to her. Much to my regret, <laughs> she was too far away from Spain. Right. And mine, believe me. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I, I just want to hear about your afternoon at Buckminster Fuller's house. That That is, you know, one of those questions, if you could spend an afternoon with anyone living or dead, he would be in my top ten probably. Well, of course, Buckminster Fuller was also a brilliant mathematician. He had the notion of the global village. He had a plan about world synergy where people could uh, overcome the logistical problems. He had a plan of how the entire world could be fed. The problem was that his plans were based upon a world at peace. Now, once war comes into the picture, all the logistics get yeah. complicated. Yeah. So. By the way, while you take that, that drink, I'll note that we're coming up to this, I think it's called Koalinga. It's one of the, it's a huge cattle lot. So if you're starting to smell things, that's what it is. It's unavoidable. It's a horrible stench we'll be driving through. I here. was raised on a farm, so oh. I just take smells in stride. Nothing phases me. Make sure you knew I wasn't smells. farting. There's no, no cow farts not coming out of me. They're... Blame the cows. No, not at all. No problem at all. All right. So anyhow, so you're going uh, with Buckminster Fuller. We're, yeah. So yeah. At, at Council Grove, I met a man by the name of Brendan O'Regan, and he was the chief of staff for Buckminster Fuller. And he is the one who invited me to meet Buck, Buckminster Fuller uh. when I was in the area. And I was. I had a friend at Southern Illinois University who I 
uh, had the great pleasure of, uh, of visiting. Um, and so I took a day off and Brandon O'Regan picked me up and took me across to the, across the border and that is where Buckminster Fuller had his home, him and his wife. And he spoke of his home very affectionately, he referred to it not as my home, but as our dome. Our dome, yeah. And it was a geodesic dome, but it was very comfortable. We had a delicious lunch, and we talked about many things. He was very much interested in parapsychology, by the way. Right. Very sympathetic, not at all hostile. He was, of course, properly skeptical. Sure. But I told him about our dream telepathy experiments, and he was fascinated by them. And then in return, he showed me his geodesic map. As you know, the Mercator production maps, which are in most U.S. classrooms, or at least were at that time, distort the world terribly. Greenland is made out to be just as big as South America. Right. But that's because of the longitude and, land, longitude and latitude and the way that they're projected on the map. He had projected the map where the continents are their actual size. And it's chopped up a little bit, but it gives a much better depiction of the world than any previous map. And he was, you know, showing me that map, and I'm happy to say that that map now is widely adapted and adopted, and you can see that depiction of the globe in many, many places on a two-dimensional surface. Right. Also, he was explaining eclipses to me, and he took out a globe of the world, and then he took an orange and pretended the orange was the moon, and then he had the lamp as the sun and showed how as the moon passed between the earth and the sun, you had the eclipse of the sun. Now, of course, I'd studied this in grade school, but nobody thought to do an actual reenactment of it the way that Buckminster Fuller did. But then he went on to show how the mechanics of that were incredible. If the moon had been a little bit bigger, a little bit smaller, if the orbit had been a little bit wider, a little bit narrower, the total eclipse could never happen. Right, and it turns out that the the apparent diameter of the sun and the apparent diameter of the moon are exactly the same in the sky, despite the fact that, as you as you say, the sun is many times larger than the moon, but its distance exactly compensates for the difference in size. Yes. Yeah, that, that's an amazing, amazing, uh, I don't want to say a coincidence, an amazing relation. Amazing relationship. I, I ascribe it to the aesthetics of nature. Right. Because I'm one of those people that believe that there isn't some supernatural being in the sky that created nature and all of the things on the earth and the universe, that the universe created itself. I right. believe in bottom-up creation. And there's an underlying symmetry to the creation. Yes, there is. That appears to reflect some greater intelligence, and maybe it does, but it's an intelligence inherent in the universe itself. Yes, that's right. It's an inherent intelligence. It's like the universe dreaming itself into existence. Right. So then, in religious terms, would you consider yourself to be an animist? Well, I think that that comes as close as you can come to putting a label on me, yes, because I see God in all things. Right, exactly. That underlying intelligence exists in everything. Right. And Wh whether I, it's an idea or a cloud or uh, an insect's eyeball. I can recommend a book by my friend Jeremy Narby called Intelligence in Nature. 
It never really got the audience that it deserved, but it's available on Amazon.com. Narby is spelled N-A-R-B-Y. And it puts all of this into quite remarkable and very reader-friendly terms. The intelligence that's inherent, not only in people and animals and birds, but in molecules and atoms. Right. And even in planets and in solar systems. You remember that book, Lives of a Cell, by oh, Lewis yes. Thomas? Oh, yes. Wonderful book. Beautiful book, absolutely. Yeah, I love that book. Uh, that was that was a it's a for anyone who wants to read it. It's a book of essays and very brief. It's a very short, small, humble little book, but it just packs a wallop with its fascinating parallels. And I remember he uh, there's a on the copy I had there's a picture of the Earth. And you see the Earth as a cell with the membrane and the nucleus and all these different elements of a cell. And one of the essays where he talks about, I guess it, it was sort of the Gaia principle, talks about the Earth as a living cell and uh, fascinating. That's the, That was the book. He was an oncologist, I believe. Yes, he was. Yeah. And uh, he talked about... In one of those essays, he talks about how cultures all around the world have a folk um, cure for warts. You know, I think in Ireland, it's, you know, you, you cut a potato in half and rub your wart with one half and bury the other half under a full moon or something. You know, there are all these your garlic or put something, you know, walk around with some a potato on your head all day. Whatever it is, there's some sort of ritual uh, in different cultures that is extremely effective at eliminating warts. And his point was, if you look at that from a biomechanical perspective, what the body is doing, uh, and it's a sort of a self-induced state of hypnosis in a way, the body is distinguishing the wart cell cells from the cells, the healthy cells around it, and eliminating the wart cells without causing any damage whatsoever to the cells around it, which, when you think about it, is exactly what you're trying to do with chemotherapy, radiation therapy, all these other highly toxic, disruptive therapeutic approaches in oncology. And his point was, why the hell aren't we studying that phenomenon? You know, there it is. It exists in our bodies. There is a way to harness the mind to to eliminate one class of cells while not affecting the others. It's it's the holy grail of oncology, but nobody's really looking into that much. Well, there, interestingly enough, this is how my father, as a boy, cured himself of warts by taking a potato, cutting it in half, putting it on the wart, first one half, then the other half, doing a prayer, and then burying it and telling nobody where it was buried, and the wart would disappear. Right. And years later, when I started to work with Montague Ullman, who was the director of the Maimonides Medical Center Psychiatric Unit, this was his first line of interest, using hypnosis to get rid of warts. Really? And he wrote some of the early classic articles on hypnosis and warts. Huh. And this is exactly what you were describing. Through hypnosis, the body's innate intelligence separates out the toxic cells from the healthy cells, and the wart shrivels up and disappears. Now, did you know that I had a wart once? 
now. And this is exactly what I did. I used self-hypnosis to get rid of the wart. How and long, it worked. How long did it take? It took a week. And I saw the wart shrivel up, and I just went and visualized that wart. What I visualized was the blood supply being cut off to the wart cells. Uh -huh. And so without the blood, the wart could not get healthy, and it would shrivel up and go, and eventually would drop off. But this brings us to another interesting topic in terms of shamanism, how shamans really aided human evolution. Shamans did a lot of these ceremonies, which, again, from a strictly rational point of view, don't make much sense, but they worked. Well, they worked because they activated the inner healer within the person, the innate intelligence of the cells. People believed that they would work, and they would sometimes follow the shaman's instructions in terms of visualizing the spirits coming into the body and you know, killing the toxic elements and getting rid of the bad spirits, and they work. Now, only a special type of person could do this. People who were very suggestible, people who had good visualization skills, people who had imagination, people who were amenable to the placebo effect. It worked for those people. It didn't work for everybody. What happened to the people that didn't work for? They died early deaths and their genes dropped out of the gene pool. Ah, fascinating. And so you're saying that what, what psychologists call hypnotic ability, which is, uh, I don't know, what, the, the, what you're saying is the distribution of hypnotic ability, which appears to be genetic, would have been much higher in shamanic cultures because of the leverage you would get from that hypnotic ability to, to be cured. That's right. That's fascinating. I've and, never thought of that. And That's this is, very interesting. And, you know, we still have the legacy of that. Placebo effects works. Uh, on, hypnosis on, works. This is right. evolutionarily adaptive. But in our society, it doesn't work on everyone because our society doesn't favor that particular trait. In fact, yeah. it disfavors it no, in some ways. No, because our society brings in drugs and surgery, and so they don't believe that they need hypnosis and the powers of the mind. Right, and also if you do have a lot of imagination, a lot of uh, you know visualization ability, unless you can make it as an artist or something, you're kind of screwed. I mean, in school, you know, you'll end up being diagnosed with ADD in a oh, lot of I cases right. and drugged to death. Oh, let's not get into that. That's depressing. But uh, yeah, that's that's a fascinating. I never thought of of the way that uh, hypnotic ability would be favored in shamanic societies. And uh, so you get this sort of runaway evolutionary cascading effect. Yes, you do. This is you know, one of the things that evolutionary psychology has taught us. You look at a trait and you ask, how is that trait adaptive? How did it help survival? How did it aid human evolution? Right. And placebo effect, hypnotizability, imagination, yes, they were very important from an evolutionary point of view. So now for people who, who think this is sort of, you know, woo-woo and uh, new agey, you're working with placebo effect all the, every time you go to a doctor, 
it always makes me laugh when you go to doctors they've all got the stethoscope around their necks right even though they don't use the stethoscope depending on what type of doctor it is they may not use it they're wear they're wearing the you know the traditional uh, what's it called the doctor you know the surgical scrubs and all that white stuff coats, right? yeah the white coats all of that is whether the doctor knows it or not is there to trigger and amplify the placebo effect well Getting back to Rolling Thunder, one of the stories we tell in our book, The Voice of Rolling Thunder, was his first encounter with a Western physician that happened at Mickey Hart's ranch. Oh, boy. And I brought the two of them together. I had an osteopathic physician friend by the name of Dr. Irving Oyle, and he really wanted to meet Rolling Thunder. Rolling Thunder was very skeptical about meeting him. He didn't have much truck with Western physicians. but. We thought that Mickey's ranch would be a good place for them to get together, and so we sent them off to the barn, and Mickey and I, you know, did some music and uh, engaged in one of our intellectual conversations. He loved talking about musical history, the history of jazz, the history of rock and roll, the history of the blues, very, very, very well versed in history of all of these topics. After about two hours, the two of them came out of the barn, arm in arm, <laughs> smiling from ear to ear. Oh, that's great. And Dr. Oyle said, you know, Rolling Thunder and I were a little bit suspicious of each other from the beginning, but then we thought, look, we do pretty much the same thing. A patient comes to me, and I listen very carefully, and I do a diagnosis, I figure out what can help them. I go through a little ritual called writing out a prescription. I give it to them. They go and get some medicine, and they usually get well. A patient comes to Rolling Thunder. He listens to them very carefully. He does a ritual, maybe some drumming, maybe some praying, maybe some smudging, and he gives them some herbs with directions on how to take the herbs, and they usually get well. But what really helps them get well is whether they really believe in what they're taking and have faith in their person that's doctoring them. Right. One of the things I find so fascinating about shamanism is that often, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in, in many shamanic traditions, it's the shaman who takes the drugs as oh, opposed yeah. to the patient so right. if if you're suffering from uh, insomnia or depression or or uh, even a, f a more sort of blatantly physiological condition and you go to the shaman he or she might take some ayahuasca or some peyote or something else in, in order to facilitate this moving between worlds the go to the upper world or the lower world seeking the source of your problem and then they come back and then the share that information with you. I found that so interesting because it sort of subverts the the Western model of, you know, the, the doctor as the medicine giver as opposed to the medicine taker. But also I found a resonance with the early days of LSD when it was marketed by Sandoz as a psychotomimetic to psychiatrists and psychologists who wanted to gain deeper insight into the experience of their psychotic patients. So they would take the LSD in order to understand what it must be like to be psychotic. Now, of course, 
since then, scientists have uh, determined that there are many dissimilarities between tripping on acid and the experience of schizophrenia or whatever. Um, but I just I, I found that sort of noble that a doctor would take acid and go through this eight or nine hour experience as a way to to gain compassion and empathy and understanding insight into their patient's condition. Well, you're absolutely right. The shaman would do the drumming, would take the substance, would do the chanting or the singing, and would go into the lower world or the upper world or the past or the future, and would come back with an answer what was needed for his patient to get well. And maybe that was a ritual, maybe it was a prayer, maybe it was a substance, but the shaman would get the information not necessarily from his own repertoire of experience, but going outside of that to get new insights, new information. Especially if it was a strange disease that the uh, shaman didn't have much experience with. Right. Now there was an exception to this, of course, Maria Sabina. Ah, Maria Sabina. Who is arguably the most famous shaman of the 20th century. She, when I met her, she would tell me about how she would take the mushrooms with her client and together they would work on an answer to the problem. For people who aren't familiar with some of this history, Maria Sabina was a shaman uh, near Oaxaca, Mexico, who was one of the first, or perhaps the first, person to share this shamanic knowledge with Westerners, which had been suppressed since the time of the, the Spanish invaders and the, the, the Inquisition that was stamping out any non-Christian worship by burning people at the stake and burning books and just, you know, viciously destroying. So the whole um, mushroom cult in these, um, what we would now call Mexican uh, cultures, were under wraps for centuries until, now you you can probably tell this story far better than I, was it Gordon Wasson who first went down there? Yes, Gordon Wasson was a banker and he and his wife had a hobby and that was studying mushrooms. She was Russian or she something. She was Russian, yeah. her name was Valentina. And they actually wrote a book called Mushrooms and Russia and History. Right. Which was a pioneering book in the field. And that's where they ran across the mind-altering mushrooms. Because, of course, in Siberia, uh, the shamans routinely used a type of mind-altering mushroom to uh, go into the other worlds. Amanita muscaria? Exactly, yeah. right. Also known they, as fly agaric. Right. Then they heard rumors that the mushrooms are still being used in parts of Oaxaca, Mexico. Even though when the Spaniards came in, as we said before, they ruthlessly suppressed the mushroom use and killed off the shamans, saying they were doing the work of the devil. And in most of Mexico, that worked. But in Oaxaca, the shamans simply took it underground and practiced it in secret and just didn't tell anybody. And the secret held for a couple of hundred years. But then Maria Sabina had a dream or a vision. And in that vision, Jesus Christ came and said, the world is in such bad shape, it's falling apart. It's time for you to share your ancient wisdom 
with the gringos. <laughs> and sure enough, a few days later, in came Gordon Wasson. Really? And Gordon Wasson and his photographer uh, started to ask about whether the mushrooms are being used. And they were on assignment from Life magazine, that's is right. that right? They were. Yeah, and this is 1961, somewhere around yeah, there. that's right, early yeah. 1950s. Oh, and wait, 50s or 60s? 50s. Oh, 50s, 1950s, yes, yes. oh, okay. And the people said, oh no, we're good Catholics, we wouldn't think of doing pagan stuff like mushrooms, but then Maria, Maria Sabina, this tiny little old woman, stepped up and said, Jesus Christ told me to break the secret and tell you, yes, we still use the mushrooms, then that I'm supposed to take you on a mushroom of Olada while you are here. Wow. So she arranged to give the mushrooms. Now she took them herself. The photographer in Gordon Wasson took them. Gordon Wasson had a vision of his son who was in extreme trouble. Got back to the United States and found out the news was correct and he was able to get his son out of the trouble. Now, do you know if this was the first time that Gordon Wasson had ever had an experience? Yes, with the first time. Now, he was a, a banker Yeah, he was a very, very 50s. wealthy, yes, very wealthy banker. <laughs> and he and his photographer did this article for Life magazine. They used a pseudonym for Maria Sabina uh, about 1954, and I read the article. Really? And I clipped it out. I have it to this day. No kidding. And I said, I would love to visit this woman someday and take the mushrooms myself. Never realizing that several decades later, I would have an invitation from a Mexican psychiatrist to go on a field trip to Huatla de Juanitas in Oaxaca and meet Maria Sabina and participate in a mushroom volada. Now, Maria Sabina um, paid a terrible price for revealing the secret. First of all, she and Gordon Wasson founded a new field of investigation called ethnomycology. Right. The ethnological study of mushrooms. But the traditionalists in the village said, oh, Maria Sabina has told the secret to the gringos, the mushrooms will lose their magic for the Indians, so we've got to punish her. Let's kill her. No, we can't kill her. She's old. She's going to die soon anyway. Let's kill her teenage son, oh, which they no. did. Oh, no. And she... I didn't know that. Yeah, she was in grief for the rest of her life, and the photographer that I was with took pictures of her, probably the last photographs that were taken of her, which have been published widely in many of my books, show that sadness in her face and in her eyes because she knows who did it, but she couldn't bring uh, a lawsuit against them because they were too smart for that. Well, yeah, and in and, Mexico. Yes, in Mexico, what could you do, especially a remote village? Other than that, Maria Sabina had been very clever. She was a good Catholic. She had formed the Ladies' Aid Society for the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church knew that she was giving the mushrooms. They said, do it in the name of Jesus Christ and everything will be fine, mm. which she did. So when I met Maria Sabina, she was living with her two daughters and they were sort of sad cases. Neither of them had, them had the gift, the don as they call it in Spanish. And they were sort of jealous of their mother and they were trying to muscle themselves into the interview. And I gave Maria Sabina, you know, some money for the interviews, and I visit shamans. I always give them something in exchange for the information I get. The next day, I went to see Maria Sabina again. 
the officers had taken the money that had gotten beer and were drunk out of their gourd and were trying to get more money. They were coming up to me and kissing me and trying to get more money, but I'd I'd given my all. Hmm. And Maria Sabina again was very sad, but I did give her my jacket. It was very chilly. And I have a beautiful photograph of Maria Sabina wearing my jacket. And it's over her weeple, her ceremonial gown that she put on when we said we wanted to take photographs of her. But anyway, she said, no, I'm too old to use the mushrooms, and you can talk to my student, Donia Clotilde. So that night, the psychiatrist and I and our little group went to this chapel, and Donia Clotilde was there. We gave her some donations. Again, I insisted they all give her a little bit of money. And she said, you know, you've come to me at a time when I don't have a lot of mushrooms available, and so one of you is going to have to sit it out. And I said, oh, I'll be happy to sit it out. I've had the mushrooms, and I'll be happy to just watch it. Oh, good, you can be my assistant. Well, being her assistant was more instructive than taking the mushrooms. I'll bet. And we went into the chapel to the concrete floor with pine boughs on Ah, it. yeah, I've seen that in Chiapas. That's right. Yeah, they take out all the pews, and they put the pine boughs. Yeah. Okay, yes. sorry, go ahead. Well, the pine yeah. bough serves a very useful purpose, as I will get to later. And my task was to take some candles and let the wax drip on the concrete and stick the candles in the concrete, and that would be the light for the night. Now, Maria Sabina had the other half of the candles. She went zip, 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 and the candles stuck in the wax. But I noticed that her candles were flat on the bottom, so her stuck very easily. She had given me the candles that were rough on the bottom. So here I was doing this very awkwardly. That I would put the candles up and they'd fall over. It took me half an hour to get those candles stuck. It made her look good. It made me look bad. But, you know, shamans are tricksters. That's part of the ways that they get their power, enhance their reputation, and I didn't mind at all. So then... People began to have their visions, and Maria Sabina said, you know, that young man and that young woman over there need some help. You go over and help them. I had met them before, and the young man was a Mexican concert pianist who had gotten stage fright. He wasn't able to perform, and he was seeing the psychiatrist that brought us there. The woman was Miss Kentucky of some decades ago. Her beauty was fading. She was in her 40s. She didn't have any resource to fall back on except her beauty. So she was having an existential crisis. Hmm. So I went over and did some counseling with them in English. Briefly put, telling the woman this was her chance to cultivate her inner beauty, finding out from the pianist that he was getting flashbacks of his mother scolding him whenever she made the wrong note. And I said, well, who was praising you? My father would praise you. I said, don't think of your father praising you. Don't think of your, your mother. And he went on to have a very successful career. He got over his stage fright. Miss Kentucky went on to have a very successful marriage. But during that session with them, they began to vomit. And it was very rough. That's why I was sent over there. But they were so grateful to me, they were hugging me and kissing me. One on one cheek, one on the other cheek. I could hardly breathe because they were throwing up. They were vomiting all over me. In gratitude. Uh, yes, yes, yes. But, you know, I just put up with it. I 
at the end of the hour, my clothes, my shirt was covered with vomit. I smelled to high heaven. And it was worth it. It helped them through their crisis. Fantastic. I had a dog like that once who would vomit in gratitude. <laughs> well, listen, we are going to take a break because we have pulled into a Denny's. I think it's lunchtime. So we're going to go into the Denny's. I'll take a picture of Stanley in Denny's, which I'll post on the website. So if you want a visual, uh, <laughs> you'll get a real-time photo of us here at Denny's. And it's also on my Instagram account, which is Chris Ryan PhD. I'm at Twitter on Twitter, Chris Ryan PhD. And you can, uh, of course, see the archives of this podcast on my website which is Chris Ryan, Ph.D. Thank God I've got that Ph.D. You know, I, I, Chris Ryan was taken, so I had to go with the Chris Ryan Ph.D. Stanley, of course, also has a website. What is that? Yes, it's www.stanleykrippner, one word, dot weebly, W-E-E-B-L-Y dot com. StanleyKrippner.Weebly.com And that's Stanley, S-T-A-N-L-E-Y, Krippner, K-R-I-P-P-N-E-R. And of course, you can see all Stanley's books, or most of them, on Amazon and elsewhere. You can Google him. He's all over the place. How many books have you published? Do you have an, you don't even know, the do you? The ones I've edited and co-authored and have worked in some capacity with also the foreign language books about two dozen about two about two dozen books and scientific articles several hundred oh, i hate to say it over a thousand over a thousand scientific articles published keeps you off the street <laughs> that is incredible all right so we're going to head into denny's and we'll come back out here and talk to you soon Welcome back to Tangentially Speaking. We're fresh out of Denny's, uh, heading up to the 5. As they say in L.A., it's the 5, the 101, the 10. I don't know if there's anywhere else where they talk about highways like that. Uh, I don't know how much of the, the car sounds are coming through on the other side, if you can hear the turn signals and the road noise and all that. But if so, I hope it's atmospheric and not irritating. Anyway, uh, well, since since we're in a little break here, why don't I just remind you, if you like the podcast, go to iTunes, if you download it on iTunes. And uh, it's, it's always helpful if you leave some comments and a rating. Apparently that uh, tweaks our logarithm in some way that results in wonderfulness. And uh, if you want to send some money our way without it costing you anything, if you're an Amazon customer... You can go through the link. Uh, probably the best link to use would be the Amazon link on sexatdawn.com. You just click on that. It says buy the book. You just click on that. 
and uh, that'll take you into Amazon, and then anything you buy in that session at Amazon will get, I don't know if it's 3 or 4% of whatever you spend. So let's say you're going to go in there and buy a, a Mac laptop for $2,000, if you just click through our link, you pay exactly the same thing for the laptop, but we'll get 60 or 70 bucks out of it, which is pretty cool. It's a way to, to uh, take some money from Amazon and give it to whomever you want. Lots of places have those sorts of uh, affiliate links. So if you uh, want to send some, you want to support this podcast, a good way to do that is go through sexatdawn.com, click on the Buy Sex at Dawn book, which will take you into Amazon, and then shop to your heart's content. You can also find the podcast at feralaudio.com, home of many great podcasts. My personal favorite is the Duncan Trussell Family Hour, meant ironically, of course, that family hour business. Duncan's a great comedian, wonderful dude, and uh, a deep intellectual. It's a shame you're not going to get a chance to meet Duncan when you're in L.A., Stanley. He's a good friend of Joe Rogan's. And he's the guy who sort of got me into podcasting. He's he's also the guy who gave me my new moniker. Last time I was on his podcast, he said, you know, you're a shame exorcist. <laughs> so uh, now I'm designing a website and, you know, under my name, it says author, podcaster, shame exorcist. That's a good vocation to have. <laughs> Isn't that a good a one? A lot of people need exorcism from shame. You know, shame. I always distinguish shame from regret. You know, I think regret is often an appropriate response to a mistake. You hurt someone, you know, there, there are lots of situations in which we can feel regret. But I can't really think of any situation in which shame is a helpful thing to feel. It just seems like a... A hundred percent negative, bullshit, unproductive thing to feel. Well, I'll go one step further than that and say that guilt is different than shame. Ah, good. What's? How do you distinguish them? Because shame is done in a social setting, ah. and people point fingers at you and say, "Oh, you did a very bad thing," and of course, you feel that you've done a very bad thing yourself. Right. Guilt is something where you might know the only, you might be the only person who knows you've done a bad thing. Right. And you still feel guilty about it. Right. So it's so, an internally generated feeling as opposed to socially. Right. Yeah. Now, you can have shame without guilt. You can say, well, I could have gotten away with it and avoided the shame. But guilt, no, guilt strikes much more deeply. And obviously you can have both shame and guilt at the same time. Right. However, when it comes to sexual behavior, this is one of the wonderful things that my friend Albert Ellis did when I was in college. I read his book, Sex Without Guilt, and it really liberated me, as it did hundreds of thousands of other readers. Little did I know that I would become a close friend of his as the years went by, and would actually do a workshop with him on rational emotive behavior therapy and personal mythology. And since his death, I've done a workshop with his widow who is carrying on the tradition. The great. I think I, yeah, I think I'm the only person in the world that's on a workshop with both the Ellis's. Huh. That's Debbie Ellis, whom yes. I've met a couple times now, thanks to you. I think first time, oh, first time I met her was in Australia. 
uh, when I was speaking down there, right. you had put us in contact, and she introduced herself, and then uh, saw her. Cassie and I saw her with you in Tampa at the Quad S meeting recently. Quad S being the Society for the Scientific Study of Sexuality, right? Yes, where you gave a brilliant speech, accepting their honor for the best book on the topic of sex. Yeah, that was that was a real honor. That was wonderful. And Debbie Ellis actually has a book out that she wrote with her late husband, Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy, available right. on Amazon.com. Now, Albert Ellis, uh, aside from Rational Emotive, uh, what's the technique called? The ration- yeah, rational Emotive Behavior Therapy. Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy, which is a... Uh, oh, we're going to have to take a break. I'm getting a call. Just okay. a moment. All right. Sorry for that interruption. Do you remember where we were? Yes, we were talking about Albert Ellis. Oh, Albert Ellis, right. So uh, just explain briefly who, how, how, why he's so important in the history of, of psychology. Columbia University is celebrating its 120th year of existence this year, if I have my numbers right. And they have posters in the subways and the streetcars all over the city. Um, remembering the famous graduates of Columbia and they have one poster on psychology and on that poster is Carl Rogers and Albert Ellis ah. both close friends of mine coincidentally great humanistic psychologists yes and they differed in many ways and the poster points that out but it says that between the two of them they shaped the course of American psychotherapy and indeed they did What Albert Ellis did was to develop what is now known as cognitive behavior therapy. He doesn't spend much time talking about past experiences like the psychoanalysts under Freud did. He focuses on the here and now and what attitudes, what belief systems are keeping a person stuck. And the attitudes and the beliefs and what I call the personal myths that keep a person stuck are irrational. They don't make sense. Like, everything I do has to be perfect. Everybody I know has to like me. I've got to make a lot of money to be happy. Those are irrational. They don't make sense. So, it's not enough that he points out the irrational nature of the beliefs. He has to also approach the emotion that goes with it. It's very easy for a person to say, yes, smoking is bad for me, I'm going to give up tobacco. And they go five minutes later and light up a cigarette. Well, I had that urge, this emotional craving. Okay, so you've got to bring emotions in also, the emotional underpinning to the belief. But then you've got to translate this into behavior. It's not only something you think and you feel, you've got to behave in the new way. And so he takes reason, emotion, and behavior and puts them together in the very efficient therapeutic passage known as REBT, or Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy. And this now has been spread all over the country and is making inroads all over the world as probably the most predominant type of psychotherapy in one form or another. And this is, this is considered within the realm of cognitive psychotherapy? Yes, cognitive therapy is the emphasis on the 
thoughts and the attitudes. Right, which is generally considered to be more effective and time efficient approach to psychotherapy than something like psychoanalysis. Or, which can go on for years. Yeah, yeah. Now, the offshoot of psychotherapy is psychodynamic psychotherapy, which is not so bad. That brings in a lot of emphasis on behavior and thought patterns, etc. But the old-fashioned psychoanalysis that took years and years and years is pretty much passe, and Albert Ellis is really the one that dealt at its mortal blow because he did some research. One group of people took the psychoana psychoanalysis approach, one took the psychodynamic approach, one took the rational mode of psychotherapy approach, and it was the REBT that made the most progress, the happiest clients, and that lasted the shortest. Uh, so it was much more time efficient. Right. And right. now in post-traumatic stress disorder, which is another one of my interests, I'm familiar with the research literature, and there are many types of psychotherapy that are effective, but it is the behavioral cognitive, the cognitive behavioral therapy that edges out some of the other psychotherapies. In terms of its effectiveness. Yes. Yeah. That Your last book was about uh, traumatic uh, effects of war. Is that right? Soldiers coming back from Iraq you and know, Afghanistan? Actually, I have three books out on war trauma. One is The Psychological Impact of War Trauma on Civilians. One is called Haunted by Combat, Understanding PTSD in in veterans, and the other one is simply called post-traumatic stress disorder, and that covers the waterfront. Bullying, rape, tsunamis, accidents, wow. uh, spouse abuse, combat, and that has gotten the best reviews of any book I've ever written on trauma, I'm happy to say. Is that um, an academic book? or Nope, this is for the general public. Oh, post-traumatic okay. stress disorder. And it's by myself and two clinicians, Daniel Pitchford and Gene Davies, and easily available on Amazon.com, and it just came out a little over a year ago, and I'm just delighted with the reception that it's been getting. And also, you see, there's a tie-in here. In all three books, I mentioned shamanism and how shamans knew how to treat trauma, hmm. in, and they still do. What was their technique? I have a shaman friend in Northern California, Fawn Journeyhawk, that I keep in touch with, and I have been in touch with her for a couple of decades. She worked with Vietnam veterans, now she's working with Iraq and Afghanistan war veterans, and she uses a number of techniques in terms of recapturing their souls. She views PTSD as soul loss. Their soul has been damaged, it's been captured, it's been kidnapped, it's been wounded, and their soul, their moral compass, the part of themselves that is the deepest part of themselves has been wounded. Again, by uh -huh. guilt, by right. shame. I was going to say, it brings us back to guilt and shame, doesn't it? It sure does. Hmm. And so she liberates them. Well, again, like you, she's an exorcist, except she uses a lot more ritual to liberate them from the guilt that they have. Like, for example, killing an innocent civilian. Right. She says she will take an out-of-the-body trip back to the back to Vietnam, back to Iraq, back to Afghanistan, 
and beg forgiveness of the survivors and get them to release the soul. And then we'll bring the soul back and in a ritual, give the soul back to the veteran. Of the survivors or of the victim? To the survivors. So, so the survivors possess the soul of the of the soldier who's yes. Suffering? Remember, when you're talking about countries in the in that part of the world, there is less of an emphasis on the individual than there is on the community and the family uh, unit. I see what you're saying, right? Now, sometimes she has to go into the lower world and talk to the victim himself or herself, and. That's usually not necessary if she talks to the survivors because they're in touch. They're in touch with the victim, the child or the woman or even the teenage man right. or the soldier. And then sometimes she really has to put up a fight to get that soul back because the trauma has been so intense that they want the perpetrator to suffer. And so she has to plead, she has to bargain, she has to cajole, she has to promise gifts, she has to give blessings. She has a whole bag of tricks, and of course she has to be sincere when she does this to talk to the people. Now, you can take this literally, or you can take this metaphorically, you know, right. that this is a metaphor, for a symbolism of what is happening. But the nice thing about it is it works. Right. And she has liberated a lot of PTSD folks from the guilt and the shame that they have, and this allows them to get on with their lives. That's the interesting thing about medicine and psychology and shamanism and all these th things where they overlap is that on some level, if it works, it doesn't really matter how it works. You know, there's a there's a great essay I remember reading years ago, a very brief essay. It's called The Myth of Mechanism. Yes. Have you heard of that essay? Yes, I have. It, very it, classic. And the idea is that, if I remember correctly, medical doctors poo-poo uh, hypnosis, for example, often. You know, they have a yeah. very mechanistic vision of right. the, the mind, body, brain. And so if it can't, if an effect can't be explained on some uh, biomechanical level, then it can't possibly be real, you know. And yet we know that hypnosis is incredibly strong. We know p lots of people have undergone major surgery with no anesthesia other than hypnosis and all these different things are very effective. So with, I don't remember the name of the author, but what he pointed out was that lots of things that we think we understand in medicine, we don't even understand. Like, for example, how aspirin works. That wasn't understood on a chemical level until the 1970s. That's right. But it was well established that this particular, what is it, a silicilic acid or something? Yes. Um, works, you know, and, and it, it exists naturally in willow tree bark. Which it, is it what came the from the Native Americans. The Native way. Americans, exactly, right. So, you know, how when LSD was invented, nobody could explain how such a tiny dosis of LSD could have such massive effects. And again, correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that trying to understand how this tiny, you know, 250 micrograms of uh, LSD could have these massive effects led to the discovery of this uh, neurotransmission systems, the serotonergic systems, and all this stuff that later um, allowed the, the development of uh, SSRIs and, and the, the newest classes of antidepressants. Uh, exactly. Now, hypnosis actually has proved itself in the 
real world because with all the research studies done on psychotherapy, if you had hypnosis of the psychotherapy, patients spend less time in psychotherapy, they have a reduction in symptoms, and they are happier about the psychotherapeutic experience. Mm. So this is a real world result of hypnosis. By the way, you can say the same thing for dreams. You put dreams into psychotherapy and they shorten the psychotherapy, people are happier, and they have a greater reduction of symptoms. Even though modern day psychotherapists generally avoid both dream work and hypnosis work, even though these do not involve drugs or medicines, or maybe because they don't involve drugs and medicines, yeah. they work so well. Now we get into the economics. You bet. Yeah, you, you were talking about um, uh, this shaman going back to Vietnam and, and all that. I was reminded of these cases of uh, the Lao refugees in yes. California. And Did you do any work with them or any research for the book? No, I've heard about them. You know what I'm talking about? They're dying, like, mysteriously. And nobody mysteriously. could understand why they were dying. And then they brought in some, some uh, shaman from Laos and uh, found that they were dying of spirit possession. Exactly. And so until they brought these people over from Laos who understood the culture and could uh, treat the problem on their cultural within their cultural context people were just dying left and right and no no western doctors could figure out what the hell was going on very fascinating anyway while we're talking about lsd i was remembering one of the great regrets of my life was not uh being able to come to the hundredth birthday party of uh, albert hoffman which you you invited us to? Yes. You remember? Tell, talk a little bit about your relationship, your friendship with Albert Hoffman, who, by the way, if, if you don't know, the listeners invented LSD by mistake. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> and it was a. He's very, he was looking uh, for a dye, a special type of dye. Oh, was that what it was? Yes, and he found this compound that had been put on the shelf. Thought that this just might be what he was looking for. And he got some on his fingertips, and on a bicycle ride, everything changed in front of him. Colors became more vivid, the streets became more crooked and more convoluted, and he went to bed and had all sorts of visions. So the next day he repeated it deliberately and kept notes on it, and as he said at the 100th anniversary of his birth, People say I discovered LSD. No, LSD discovered me. Oh. And I was sitting on the podium at the time. I was a close friend of Albert's, and I got up at the microphone after he'd given his little talk, and I said, LSD couldn't have discovered a better person to bring <laughs> it into the world. Yeah. But the uh, 100th anniversary was quite incredible, and for some strange reason or another, they put me on the program four times because I was able to talk about LSD and creativity. I was able to talk about LSD and indigenous people. And I was able to talk about LSD and psychotherapy. And also I was able to talk about LSD and parapsychology. So I didn't feel right about hogging the whole show so much. So I shared a lot of my time with other people. Um, I noticed that out of all of the 
100 people, they didn't have very many women on the program. They didn't have people of color on the program. So I had a whole hour to talk about LSD and parapsychology. And so I had a Mexican woman who was the assistant of the psychiatrist who introduced me to Rio Sabina. I had her take 15 minutes. I had a psychiatrist from Chile take 15 minutes. Psychiatrist from Colombia take 15 minutes. Psychologist from Colombia. I divided the time up and got some real authentic people of color on the program who actually knew more about LSD than I did because they actually were using it in psychotherapy. Really? It's legal in, in Latin America? It's, let's put it this way, it was legal in the context in which they used it. Hmm. And remember that it wasn't LSD that they used, they were using plant substances. Oh, okay. Like ayahuasca or Yes, biodiver. that's right. Yeah. That's did, right. Did you ever meet Richard Evans Schultes? I actually did. Really? Richard Evans Schultes was on a panel with Gordon Wasson. I was invited up, Gordon Wasson, you told your audience about some time ago. Once he got turned on by the mushrooms by Rio Sabina, that became a passion. He retired from his banking job. Oh, by the way, uh, we didn't, sorry to interrupt you, but we didn't mention who else read that famous Life magazine story that you cut out and saved. Yes. Timothy Leary. That's right. And that's what set Timothy Leary on his path of <laughs> destruction and liberation. Uh, so it did, both destruction and liberation. Another close friend of mine, I didn't approve of what Timothy did, but, you know, I don't approve of a lot of the things that my friends do. <laughs> Myself included, no doubt. Oh, oh, I'd have to think pretty hard about that, but uh, you and I are on the same wavelength. Uh, <laughs> Nevertheless, Tim was always very gracious to me and my stepchildren and my wife. He was always very pleasant. He was always very kind. And with me, kindness goes a long way, yeah. even though I thought his effects upon the field were pretty disastrous. Yeah. But the government is even worse, so, yeah. you know, nobody really came out of that. Uh, well, some people would say colors. that he gave the government exactly what they needed to clamp down. He sure did. You know, he... He was the gift that kept on giving. Yep, the saying crazy stuff and encouraging all sorts of revolutionary activity. My, I, I love, one of my favorite Beatles songs ever is uh, Come Together. Yes. Which, as you know, but most people don't, was actually written for Timothy Leary as his campaign theme when he ran, when he was planning to run for governor right. of California. But I guess he got busted in that marijuana thing coming back from Mexico just before. His daughter apparently had some weed in her bag or something, and he took the fall for it. Did you ever meet the Beatles? I heard the Beatles, but I never met them. You heard them live. I heard them live at uh, Shea Stadium in New York City. Oh, that was a big. I should concert. say that I saw the Beatles. Yeah, you because heard the Once scream. they got on the stage, there was so much screaming. I probably yeah. didn't hear a note that they sang. I think wasn't that the concert where they pretty much decided they wanted to stop touring? Yes, because they couldn't even hear themselves. I think there was that was a good reason. Yeah. So, let's, it, if you don't mind, let's just talk about other like famous people you've known over the years. Because I, every time we're talking, you mention, oh yeah, and then I met, you know, whatever. I mean, well, let's get back to let me finish my sure. story about Albert Hoffman. Oh sure, yeah, okay, yeah. Closure. To well, he's that. he's a famous, very famous person. Because I met Albert Hoffman at a conference in Alpbach, Austria, 
which was the first of many, many European conferences on shamanism. And that was the famous conference where Rolling Thunder was invited. And I talk about that conference in our book, The Voice of Rolling Thunder, because not only was Rolling Thunder there, but Michael and Sandra Harner were there, who went on to create the uh, their shamanic counseling training program, the Society for Shamanic Studies. Right. Was Stan Groff there by any chance? And I don't remember Stan Groff being there, and if he were there, I'd remember him because I've been at many conferences with Stan. However, they had Don Jose Rios Matsua from the Huichol tribe in Mexico there. And that's a wonderful story because he was in his 90s at the time, and he had to get a passport to go out of Mexico, and he was born in Huichol country before they had birth certificates. Uh. Now, he had a student by the name of Brant Secunda, and Brant is now a full-fledged Huichol shaman, even though he was a nice little Jewish boy from New York when he met Matsua. And his parents always wanted him to be a doctor. Well, he ended up a shame, and that's the same ballpark. <laughs> yeah, tell that to his parents. Yeah, so anyway, uh, he told his parents, who have some influence in political circles, how can we get Don Jose to this conference? And they pulled some strings and got the Mexican government to give him a visa for life. Mm. So he could travel any place he wanted on a Mexican visa. Right. So Don Jose got off the airplane, and here he is, this tiny, frail, frail old man, and he was bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and Don Jose, you've been traveling for hours across the Atlantic. You've never taken such a trip, and you're so bright and fresh. How do you do it? And he said, oh, I just took a little peyote before I got on the plane, and I've been flying ever since. <laughs> so at dinner that night, we put Don Jose and Rolling Thunder at the same table, and Brandt translated Weechol into English so that Rolling Thunder could understand him, and the two of them got along famously. And then they were planning the opening of the conference the next day, and the Rolling Thunder is the best-known shaman here, the best-known medicine person here, so we want him to open. He says, no, it's not proper that I open the conference. Don Jose is my elder. He must open the conference. Mm. So even though they had only met once before, they still had this bond in common, and Rolling Thunder showed respect for his elders, which, of course, is very typical of Native people. And so Don Jose and Brant Secunda, his apprentice, did this marvelous drumming ceremony that opened the conference. And Rolling Thunder, of course, did his presentation a little later, and it was certainly a visible force at the conference, especially when a pretty girl walked in front of him. He went off. He was bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, too, but not from peyote. We tell all sorts of delightful stories about Rolling Thunder's sex life in our book, The Voice of Rolling Thunder. And unlike people from other traditions, shamans don't turn their back on sex. They might abstain for a while when they're going through a period of purification, but for the most part, they're very lusty, very, very healthy, and the Native American shamans also refer, often refer to sex as elk power. Hmm. And we have a nice yeah. little segment in our book on how open-minded Native Americans were to what we would call gay people and bisexual people, 
because the Native American concept, not in all of the tribes, but in most of the tribes, is that the Great Spirit must have worked very hard to create these unusual people who are attracted to members of their same sex. And so we have to pay them special honor and put right. them in positions of great honor and authority. And some of them ended up becoming shamans. Others ended up becoming musicians or dancers. Right. Again, because they are able to move between worlds. That's right. right? They move between the gender worlds. And the exactly. two-spirited ones, right? The two-spirited ones. And, of course, in many tribes, including the Siberian tribes, even the male shamans, who are what we would call heterosexuals, wear a lot of women's clothes so that they can take on that feminine power in their ceremonies. Uh. So we have this blurring of genders, which is very common in shamanism, and which was one of the reasons why the Inquisition killed off the shamans when it came to North America, because, you know, such gender bending was anathema to them. Until the invention of rock and roll. You bet, and that again changed the world. Yeah. Yeah, and now we've got David Bowie and Prince and Little Richard, and, you know, the list goes on and on of, of uh, performers who occupy that middle space between genders or both genders. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I, I, I'm thinking in terms of the overlap of shamanism. And we have Frank Ocean. Don't forget him. He's very big nowadays, and he admitted that his first serious love affair was a two-year love affair with a man. Oh, really? And that didn't diminish his popularity at all. That no. enhanced his image. Yeah, yeah. And he's one of the biggest names on the rock and roll circuit right now. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I was thinking of the doors. There's sort of an explicit overlapping of shamanism, Native American spirituality, and rock and roll. You ever, uh, you ever hang out with them? I actually wrote an article about Jim Morrison called Jim Morrison, A Failed Shaman. Oh. It appears in a Spanish-language book, by the way, called Chaos. Uh-huh. And it uh, tells the whole story of Jim Morrison and how, according to a legend, maybe it actually happened, but according to a legend, as he told it, when he was with his parents... They ran into a car wreck, yeah. and some Native Americans had been killed, and he felt that the soul of one of the Native Americans came into his body. Yeah, I remember that. And he was never the same since. That's how the, the Oliver Stone movie begins, with that scene. It does. I thought that was a very good movie, by the yeah, way. Yeah, I did too. And so he had the capacity to do much more with the shamanic sensibility that he did but his excesses, alcohol among them, really yeah. did him in. And yeah. it was a yeah. shame. It is a shame. I, that's one thing I never, I never really understand. I, I don't mean this in a judgmental way, but when you see someone who, who's been privileged to have access to these realms, these sacred realms that we're talking about. Yes. And yet they persist in, in such pedestrian, self-destructive behavior like alcoholism. Then Alan Watts is another person like that who comes to mind is, you know, having been very versed in, in extremely privileged, esoteric kinds of knowledge. And yet he drank himself to death. Well, as you know, I knew Alan Watts very well. I dedicated one of my books to him. He was a very important influence in my life. 
I started to read Alan Watts when I was an undergraduate at the University of Wisconsin. He opened me up to Eastern wisdom. Never in the million years did I dream that I would meet him. Like, never in the million years would I dream that I would meet and become good friends with Albert Ellis. Right. Never did I dream that I would meet Maria Sabina. Yeah. Um, yeah, those are three in, stellar in, characters. Incredible. Yeah. So Alan Watts knew that he had an alcohol problem. And from time to time, he would say, I finally licked booze. My wife and I have discovered sparkling cider. Come and have some Martinelli sparkling cider with us, which I did. And, of course, I congratulated him. The next week, he was off the wagon again. Hmm. But what most people don't know about Alan Watts is that he was on the advisory board of the Maryland Psychiatric Research Institute project with LSD, psilocybin, and other psychedelics. And one of their projects was using it to change alcoholic behavior. Yeah, And right. Alan Watts signed up for that project. Right. He was going to go to Maryland, and he was going to take LSD in a therapeutic setting, which he had never done before, and he was going to lick the alcoholism once and for all. And then he went to Europe, and Europe had him on a whirlwind tour, lectures, workshops. He came home fatigued. He had a heart attack. He died weeks before he was supposed to go to Baltimore. And it was very, very tragic. I was supposed to have an interview with his daughter shortly after he got back from Europe. And I got a phone call saying she can't meet with this morning because her father died last night. And he had left instructions for the Buddhist priests to come and cremate his body, and they did. And they told me the body went up into flame immediately. Well, it was so soused with alcohol that, of course, it went up into flames immediately. And then some of the ashes were buried one place. Some of the ashes were scattered another place according to his wishes. And it was very, very sad because Alan had so many gifts, so many talents, and yet he had this demon that he just couldn't lick. And unfortunately, his third wife, who I knew very well, was not helping the situation because she became an alcoholic herself. So he really didn't have the support group around him. I have been to so many Alcoholics Anonymous meetings with friends of mine that have licked alcohol through Alcoholics Anonymous which is not perfect, but which has helped a lot of people. And there are very good programs for alcoholism today. And the interesting thing about Alcoholics Anonymous is it has a spiritual element that takes people beyond themselves, but in such a way that there is a Buddhist version of Alcoholics Anonymous, there is even an atheist version of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because you say the higher self, well, that higher self can be your own self-healing capacities. Right. Or it can be Buddha, it can be Jesus, but the higher self is left to the individual to make contact with, and it's transcendent, it's transpersonal, it takes the individual beyond the ego, it's the ego that for one reason or another gets caught up in all these irrational belief systems that do the person in and bring them back to alcohol. Do you know who Russell Brand is? 
oh yes, yes, I met Russell Brand. He was a great pioneer, absolutely. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. It must be a different Russell Brand. Oh, you mean the comedian? Yeah, yeah. Pardon me. No, I've never met Russell Brand, but I enjoy his movies, I enjoy his television uh, appearance. Well, you know, he was a... Uh... I'm talking about the whole Earth catalog. Oh, yeah, oh, I, I met him just at TED two, two weeks ago. He presented at TED, he yeah, did. yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Um, Stuart Brand. Stuart Brand, yeah, right. exactly. Okay. Russell Brand is hilarious. Yeah, I enjoy him very much. He's very funny. Well, you know, he was a junkie for many yes, years. And right. And he still looks like a junkie. That's does. what makes him so funny. He does. Uh, but he's extremely articulate. A very, very intelligent guy. Every once in a while, he'll write an article for Vanity Fair or Rolling Stone or something. And uh, recently, he wrote an article, very heartfelt article uh, when um, that uh, what was her name the singer who died so, uh, young great singer dark hair British she overdosed and died you know who I'm talking about anyway she so he wrote this article about uh, addiction and so on and he said something I thought was very poignant he said um, he said uh, drugs and alcohol weren't my problem they were the answer to my problem that is very perceptive i think that's so what do you what do you think about addiction do you i mean obviously there are substances that have physiological build up a physiological tolerance and that triggers physiological responses there are so you could say these are you know nicotine is an extremely addictive substance in that sense but you don't get hooked on nicotine by smoking one cigarette. It takes time. It takes persistence. I mean, I mean, Heroin has the reputation of being able to addict somebody after one injection. Yeah, it has that reputation. But if you talk to junkies, they'll tell you that's bullshit. I know. I mean, I've, I've done heroin twice. and, and It's uh, an undeserved reputation. Yeah. I think that with any of these drugs that are addictive, in quotes... You have to have taken them several times before the body actually develops the tolerance, and then you usually have to take a little bit more to keep the high going. Right. So I'm not one of those people that believes that physiologically one hit and you're hooked. Yeah. You have to look for the underlying psychological need that it's fulfilling in some way or another. Right. And... Let's face it, a lot of people are in pain, physiological pain, psychic pain, whatever. Right. And these substances, nicotine being one, heroin being one. Alcohol. Alcohol being one, pharmaceutical sure. drugs like codeine being another one. Masturbation. I wouldn't include masturbation. No? No. Well, a lot of people are addicted to, you know, the sex addiction. Is this in the news? Sex addiction is a different thing. Let's talk about that later. All right. So we'll stick Let's to substances. Let's talk about that later. Let's talk to substances. I think that's... What about a, money? Does that count as an addictive substance? That's another addiction. Yes. No. Yes, yes, yes. And you see, it depends how you're going to define addiction. Now... Money is addictive in the sense of the word that you bring in money and you get a lot of psychoneurotransmitters kicking in and providing a psychic reward. Right. People keep saying, why is it that people that make a lot of money are never satisfied? They keep asking for more. Yes, every time they seal a deal or swindle somebody or get 
some money at the gambling casino, this gives them a rush. And they keep looking for that same rush. Right. So they're no longer doing it for the money, they're doing it for the rush. And addictions, in whatever form, even masturbation, if you want to include that, um, give a person a rush that literally takes them out of themselves. So there's a transcendent, transpersonal, even spiritual element to addiction. And so the answer is, okay, where can they find transcendent in a way that is life-promoting instead of life-denying? Right. And the answer to that is, well, through art, through music, through gardening. Through love. Absolutely. Through, uh, through uh, business concerns, which are win-win situations. Relationships with animals. Oh, that's one of the best, relationships with animals. You bet. Relationships with plants, as I said, gardening, growing yeah. stuff. There are many things that can give people, and I've had that experience myself getting rushed from some of these uh, from some of these pastimes and I hear people say well I'm addicted to gardening I just can't wait to go out and get into my garden and pull the weeds if they want to use the word addiction that's fine but right. I think that it's something that they simply enjoy right and they're doing something that's constructive they're doing something that's life promoting they're doing something that's enhancing them spiritually that's giving them skills that's making them bigger and better people and that ultimately is helping them relate not only to other people but to nature itself yeah yeah have you uh, seen any advanced copies of the new DSM I have not seen the advanced copies I've certainly read sections of the new DSM what do you think are they going in the right direction well yes and no the DSM, by the way, is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is sort of the Bible of uh, psychology and psychiatry for diagnosing conditions. So some of the things that we're talking about right now are, are you know, like attention deficit disorder didn't exist until it was in the DSM. And didn't when did homosexuality stop being a psychiatric I disorder? I think the year was 1948. The psychiatrists got there first and then the psychologists followed by taking it out of the uh, lexicon of mental disorders. Right. Right. And that liberated a lot of people. Talk about shame and guilt. That yeah. was a major major uh, turning point for many many people. Even though to this day, of course, you have many fundamentalistic religions espousing the uh, so-called therapeutic programs that change homosexuals into straight people. Right. Uh, even though that has been researched, it doesn't work, it makes things even worse, and yet they keep on peddling their wares, they keep on getting millions of dollars from families who are so concerned with their gay and lesbian children, and force them to get into these uh, programs, and sometimes they do change, sometimes they do change, but sometimes they would change simply because sexuality is malleable. Right. It's not fixed for life, especially for people who do not have um, the conditioning in their younger years that sort of fix them and put them into a certain pattern. I think Lou Reed's parents sent him to a psychiatrist to try to cure his homosexuality and the psychiatrist used electroshock therapy. Oh God, I remember that. 
Famous case, yes. Yeah, horrible case. I was actually at the American Psychological Association when they gave the results of their several-year study about uh, conversion therapy, converging, converging gay people into straight people, and they went right down the line with a beautiful PowerPoint presentation debunking it, and not only does it, no, does it do no good, it does more harm than good. So as far as I'm concerned, that's completely discredited, yet there are some people that keep on doing it and keep on making money by it, and some states still allow it to be practiced. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. Well, listen, do you want to take a break? You've, no, keep on going for a, few all right? for a few minutes more okay. because I have some loose ends I want to figure out. Good, good. Well, we can up. talk as long as you want. We can also take a break and pick it up. We are, we're about two hours outside of... Uh, Outside of L.A. Okay, so. we're making good progress. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you what I wanted to finish up. Yeah, please. I told you that my old friend Carl Rogers is now sharing a poster with my old friend Albert Ellis in the New York subways, thanks to Columbia University. And it was Carl Rogers who espoused person-centered psychotherapy, formerly client-centered psychotherapy, where he would not be directive at all. He would listen to the person, and he felt that being in attentive listener would bring out the self-healing qualities of the person and would help the people find the answers to their own problems. While Albert Ellis, on the other hand, would say, yes, and those people come up with the same stupid answers to their own problems they did before they went to a therapist. <laughs> so the two of them were on different sides of the fence in terms of psychotherapy. But what's often overlooked, they did have one very important thing in common. And that was, they both preached the gospel of self-acceptance. Right. And these therapists needed to accept the clients for who she or she was, and get the clients to accept themselves, and that was the first step in psychotherapy. And Shame exorcism, ladies and gentlemen. There you are. There you are. So doing exercising a person of shame and guilt, from there on, everything else is gravy, no matter what type of therapeutic technique you use. <laughs> That's right. Hey, speaking of exorcism, am I remembering correctly that you were a technical consultant on that movie, The Exorcist? Oh, uh, that was a funny story. I was at Maimonides Medical Center doing the dream telepathy work, and the... I should mention, of course, that that is discussed in another book of mine that we haven't mentioned so far, Debating Psychic Experience, mm. which I edited with Harris Friedman. We brought together some of the staunch proponents of parapsychology and the most knowledgeable critics of parapsychology, and we had them debate each other between a cover of the book. Uh huh. Yeah, so we gave each pe each group the equal number of pages, and I think it came off very well. I feel that they were very well represented, yeah. and people can read the book and make up their own minds. Did you have the amazing Randy? He is Was not he? an academic. Oh, I yeah, see. We had what a an academics only. This to academics. Right. But if you read the San Francisco Weekly article about me, you heard what the amazing Randy said about me. Yeah, that was a really that was a well done article. I was I was pleased with that. That he felt I was very fair minded, which I tried yeah. to be. I tried to see both sides of the question, and then of course I'll come down on one side of the question or the other. Right. But I certainly respect the other side. But that that's pretty much 
And if I had to describe your your importance, I guess, in, in that realm, in the parapsychology, you're that bridge between those two, two worlds. You're, you're respected on both sides of the issue, which is, uh, as Randy said, a, a beautiful thing, because everybody respects you, as far as I can tell. Almost everybody. Victor <laughs> Stegner is a physicist, and he did a podcast interview recently, and he, somebody asked if he was familiar with me, he's, yes, yeah, Stanley Krippner is the biggest charlatan of them all. Oh, really? <laughs> Why? You're not selling anything. What's... Uh, I'm, if I were selling something, I'd be rich. If I were a charlatan, I wouldn't be. Exactly. I'd be retired by now instead of working <laughs> exactly. my fingers to the bone. Right. So, so what I kind wish of charlatan, I charlatan could you be? You're, you're... Well, he, he, didn't, he didn't expound on that. So maybe he's confusing you with someone else? Oh, no. Oh, no. I'm sure he. I'm Stanley sure... Kubrick, maybe? <laughs> no, I'm sure he was thinking of me. <laughs> but if I ever if I ever corner him, I will pin him down. Let me yeah, tell you. yeah, that'd be interesting to know. Because I mean, I've I've read an awful lot of your your books and your articles, and and you're always coming at it from a very sort of neutral, uh, non-judgmental, just wanna try to understand what's happening perspective. You're not, as far as I can tell, you don't really even have a an agenda. Other oh, than I advancing knowledge. Advancing knowledge is my only agenda, exactly. Hmm. And you don't advance knowledge by cutting yourself off from one body of data or one body of criticism or the other. Right. You learn from it. Right. Now, we were talking about uh, famous people you've known. And every time I hang out with you, I stumble across... Uh, some story somewhere. I mean, you, you, Uma Thurman's parents are old friends of yours, and you had dinner with Salma Hayek, and who, she was asking you for dating advice. Oh, yes. Is that the story? And you told her about me, but oh, oh too bad he's married. Yes. And yes. when you told, Stanley told us that story, I was with Casilda, and I remember Casilda saying, Stanley, Chris is not married for Salma Hayek. <laughs> I thought you knew that. <laughs> Definitely have a wild card when it comes to Salma. Hayek. Selma Hayek did very well for herself. She, she did. She, My yeah, Lord. She married a very outstanding and wealthy man. She's done very well in her career. She's not only an actress, she's a director, she's a producer. She's well respected in international circles. When I was with her for dinner, she had just got an invitation to host the entertainment section for the Nobel Peace Prize. Oh, my. And if you saw the Academy Awards this year, she was absolutely stunning in a black gown with a beautiful diamond necklace. Uh, didn't see that. Yes. And I met her completely by accident. I've, been, I've, I've admired her for years because she is so beautiful, so sexy, and so determined and goal-oriented. She was the queen of soap operas in Mexico. Right. But she wanted to be on the screen in American movies. And so... When Sidian Morningstar and I were up visiting Jay-Z Knight and giving a lecture for the Ramtha group, the uh, person was taking us on the tourist. By the way, Selma Hayek is here. Would you like to meet her? I, I cannot believe it. She's one of my favorite actors. And he said, come over here, I'll introduce you. And I saw her, and I just went out of control. I ran toward her, I grabbed her, I hugged her, I kissed her, I said, Salma Hayek, I love you. <laughs> really? And she didn't even, and instead of pushing me away, she just hugged me back. Oh, were, know, there, were there bodyguards? 
No, no bodyguards. Oh, she was there with you. she was there with her brother because her brother was learning a great deal from Jay Z Knight and Ramtha, and Selma was saying, "That's all bunk. I'm going to go up with you, and I'm going to poke holes in their argument." She went up. It made a lot of sense to her, so she stayed for the seminar, yeah. and then she. Miraculously, she had heard my name, so when I introduced myself, she said, oh, I want to talk to you, let's have lunch together. We had lunch together, we had dinner together, and then I missed one of the great opportunities of my life. Sidian Morningstar was with me, and of course, he enjoyed her too. She said, I want the two of you to come up to my ranch for a weekend. And I should have said, fine, let me have your card, let me have your address, let me have your email. Right. Did I ask? No. I said, that would be wonderful. You got to nail down a day, yeah. You have to nail things down with your celebrity. Right. When you're with a celebrity because 24 hours later, there'll be somebody else exciting that comes into your life and you will be forgotten. Right. Yeah. Anyway, that was my day with Salma Hayek. And if nothing else comes of it but that, that was a priceless experience. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd probably pay about ten thousand dollars to give Salma Hayek a hug, and then a thousand dollars for each second after one minute. <laughs> well, <laughs> it would be worth it. I, I wouldn't it let would go till it. my bank account was empty. Believe if me. any of you folks out there listening know Salma Hayek, you pass the word on. Put her in touch with Chris. Yeah, that's right. Chris and Stan. That's right. We'll come up to her ranch. We'll bring Sidian. in. Um, uh, shout out to Sidian, by the way. I'm sure he's listening to this podcast. We'll say hi to him. He he uh, sends me emails. Yeah, I told Sidian, you know, Selma Hayek studied English five hours a day so that she could get a role in an American movie. And she said, how did you know that? I said, oh, I'm a fan of yours. I know a lot about you. I know that you're, Ed that you're dating Edward Norton. And then we were talking about dating. I said, look, as long as you date nuts like Edward Norton, who's eccentric as all get out, you're never going to find the man of your dreams. How did you know he was eccentric? <laughs> I hear things like that. I read things like that. He's a wonderful actor, though. Yeah, as far is. as I'm concerned, he's to be as eccentric as he wants because he's the he's a great actor. Yeah, yeah. And you were on the Johnny Carson show a couple times, weren't yes, you? Yes, I was on Johnny Carson, and that gave me one of the most poignant experiences of my television career. I was on the Johnny Carson show and and on the show with me was Tony Randall the oh, actor great Tony Randall from the odd couple right yeah he's and a during great actor. the intermission Tony Randall said you know I went to a psychiatrist once and he was telling me that he was able to work twice as well and see twice as many clients if he took amphetamine at the beginning of the day. And I had my doubts about that. I don't like to take foreign substances into my system. I said, you're absolutely right, especially amphetamine. And then he said, I noticed that my psychiatrist would get me mixed up with other people. He would lose his memory. And I still kept going to him. But finally, he was confessing more to me than I was confessing to him. And I kept going because I felt he needed me. And then one day, I came to his office, and the secretary said, you haven't heard the news, the doctor shot himself last night. Wow. So, that, talk about drugs. That's not what you want from a psychiatrist. Yeah, yeah. That was, that, that was very poignant. That was the most memorable thing I remember about the, my appearance on the Johnny Carson show. 
who was great, by the way. Very, very thoughtful, very, asked very good questions, and was uh, very well versed in magic. You know, I was, oh, an, yeah. I was an amateur magician when right. I was a kid. Right. And that's what... Johnny was, too, the great he, Carson. He was, he was. He was very good at what he did. Yeah, I and saw. I used to put on magic shows. I still do some mentalism acts, by the way. Did, so did Johnny do some some magic when you were on the no, show? No, we, we simply talked Just about, about it. Just talk about it. Oh, okay. But this is why when I am exposed to somebody who supposedly does something that is psychic, the first I think of is, if this person were a magician... How would he or she be doing that by sleight of hand? Right. And if I can figure out a way that that could be done by sleight of hand, then my red flags go up. Right. Right. And, of course, this is why we need experimental controls of one sort or another. Yeah. In, in a laboratory or even in the field. Yeah. Yeah. So who else? You met David Byrne backstage at a Grateful Dead show. Is that On right? stage, I was given a... Uh, a seat right on stage at the Berkeley Amphitheater in the role that they reserve for celebrities and who should come and sit right down by me but David Byrne wow. who had never been to a Grateful Dead show <laughs> and so he wanted to hear all about the Grateful Dead mm. and of course I'd seen his movie uh, which one? Stop Making Sense? Stop Making Sense. Oh, that's a great movie. It is. And so I was quite familiar with him. The, the concert movie. Yes, did, the did concert you ever, movie. Did you ever see the... No, I never saw them in person. Uh, did but, you ever see the other movie, um, True Stories? True Stories I saw, yes. Yeah, that was a Fine great Fine movie. movie. Yeah. So I gave him a primer on The Grateful Dead because after the show was over, he had special entree backstage, and he was the only one allowed backstage so they could devote their time backstage entertaining him. Ah, right. And what did he think of the show? It's loved it. Really? He loved the show. I mean, the Dead, uh, the Grateful Dead's music is sort of the polar opposite of Talking Heads. Absolutely, it is. I mean, the Talking Heads are so tight and rehearsed and, you know, professional and clean and Grateful Dead can be sort of meandering and uh, certainly, certainly not what you'd call disciplined. But there is a discipline in that meandering. Yeah. And as you know, there is now an archives at the University of California Santa Cruz Library, an archive for the Grateful Dead. And I was one of 100 people invited down for the opening of the archive. And uh, Jerry Garcia's ex-wife Mountain Girl was there and their daughter cut the ribbon that opened the archives. Mm. And that was a wonderful occasion because I met people like Rock Scully, who I hadn't seen for years. And Rock Scully, I have a wonderful story about in the book, The Voice of Rolling Thunder. Who's Rock Scully? Rock Scully was a road manager for the Grateful Dead. Oh. And he was arrested and sent to jail, not because anything he did, but because he would not give government evidence in a drug case. Uh -huh. And so we had a ceremony for him that Rolling Thunder officiated at. And Rolling Thunder smudged all of us. What is smudge? It's it's sage that's burnt at the edge, and uh -huh. then he takes the sage ashes and smudges it on your face. It's I a very see. sacred ceremony. Right. And he said to Rock Scully, this will strengthen you while you're in jail, and you're going to have an experience in jail that you would never have in the outside world and one that will be very positive. 
and one that you will be talking about for the rest of your life. Really? So he goes to jail in Lompoc, which is a minimum security oh, prison. A minimum security or maximum security? Well, one or the other. Yeah, I think it's maximum. Maybe, it's, maybe it's maximum security. Yeah, Lompoc is a... Maybe it wasn't Lompoc. Anyway, he yeah. went to a prison. That's right. the bottom line. Okay. And who should be next door in his cell but H.R. Holdeman, really? Nixon's chief of staff. Wow. And Nixon's chief of staff in Rockskeld had many long conversations. And Haldeman was the only one of the Watergate conspiracy who felt sorry for what he had done and wrote about it in his autobiography. And I like to think that maybe some of that came through the long conversations he had with Rock Scully. Right. And when he told his kids that he had met Rock Scully, they were really excited because they were Grateful Dead fans. <laughs> wow. Wow. Okay. Any other like any other big '60s, '70s musicians that you met through the Grateful Dead or oh, good heavens. separately? Jimi yes. Hendrix. You ever met Jimi Hendrix? Uh, I was actually was at the Jimi Hendrix concert when he was opening up for the Monkees. Wow. <laughs> and I wanted to take my oh, that's, stepkids that's to that concert. That's just wrong. And I said, <laughs> look, he is so much better than the monkey. Oh he is God. going to be a major star. Major. Yeah. Don't forget him. And, of course, he did become a major star. And the monkeys. Jeez, yeah. what happened to the monkeys? Well, you yeah. know, they did pretty well. They went yeah. their separate ways. Yeah. But they... Uh, you know, one of them died recently, which yeah, is a shame. Yeah, I saw that. But they had successes in their life. They had a good run of it for being yeah. an artificial synthetic band. Yeah. And I... Backstage, you know, with the Grateful Dead... Oh, I should mention that I got to go to the trailer of The Who. Oh, wow. Yes. Mickey said, let's go over and smoke some dope with The Who. So the Grateful <laughs> Dead went over to The Who trailer. And we all got high together on marijuana and I met I met the whole Who and I talked to Roger Daltrey and I said, you won't remember this, but before you were famous, you did a gig in Baltimore, Maryland. This was the days when you were burning your guitars on stage. And you were staying at the same hotel I was, and you were having breakfast, and I went over to congratulate you, and you folks had me sit down and join you for breakfast. Oh, really? And that meant a lot to me, huh. that uh, uh, you were so modest that you let me have breakfast and enjoy talking about the musical scene with me. Right, right, wow. With Pete Townsend, and was that when Keith Moon was still alive? Yes, that was when Keith Moon was still with us, right. Wow. Right. Yeah, I met Roger Daltrey's daughters. Oh. Because uh, I pumped gas in this gas station in Greenwich, Connecticut when I was in high school. And there was this uh, sort of eccentric British woman who used to come in and get, she had a diesel Mercedes Benz. And this was back when there were very few cars that ran on diesel. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had a diesel pump there. So she used to come in and one day she came in and said, so you're going to go see the Who Boys tonight. They were playing in Madison Square oh. Garden. And I didn't know who she was talking about, the Who Boys. And I said, yeah, the Who, that's a big, you know, this rock band. And I had no idea. 
And uh, she said, if you want to go, just, you know, here, she gave me your number and just call. I'll line up some tickets for you. And, oh, good heavens. And uh, the guy who was working with me, I told him, the guy at the gas station, I was like, hey, have you ever heard of the Who? I thought they were called the Who Boys because uh-huh. she would say the Who Boys. Anyway, he, he got the tickets and he went and saw them because he knew them and loved them. But, uh, yeah, I remember his, his daughters. They were little girls. They were maybe, you know, six and uh-huh. four or something at the time in the back of the car. And then later when I saw Roger Daltrey, I recognized that face in the from the girls. So, okay, Roger Daltrey, the who? The oh, Grace Slick. And the, oh, all really? The oh, yes. Oh, man. I them backstage. Grace Slick was very regal. I'll bet. When she came in... It was like royalty. Everybody stopped talking and they almost bowed to her. She had such a presence. And this was when Jefferson Airplane and the Grateful Dead were a joint concert together. Uh. And the New Riders of the Purple Sage. And I got high with Marmaduke. (laughs) We had a... Uh, several times, yeah, we were very, very good friends. Wow! Back in those days, in the band, the band, the performed. band. Yeah, I was going to ask about Dylan. Did you ever meet Dylan? No, I heard him perform, but no. I never met him. You right. know, he is. He's very private. Very yeah. private. Yeah. And I would not. Well, I haven't pushed to meet any of these people. Right. The people who have come my way, it's been completely serendipitous. Creedence Clearwater. Pardon me. Creedence Clearwater Revival. You ever met yes. them? Yes. No, I never. John Fogarty, I think. I heard them. Creedence Clearwater. I passed by their house in the Haight-Ashbury. Uh-huh. And they were sitting on the porch. And somebody who was taking me on a turn, do you want to go up and meet them? I said, no, that's intrusive. You know, they yeah. work hard. They're enjoying themselves. Right. I'm not going to intrude and push myself in. Yeah. It's nice enough that I can say that I've seen them. Right. Right. And, of course, I keep secrets. Some of the episodes with the Grateful Dead, I simply don't talk about or write about. Right. And if somebody wants to talk about it later, you know, that's their thing. Like with Daniel Ellsberg. You were talking to me about Daniel Ellsberg. Whom I met at your 80th birthday a few months ago. Yeah. Yeah. And 40 years ago, when he was a major celebrity and a very controversial one, almost went to jail... And for they, releasing the Pentagon Papers. for That's right. Uh, and he was yeah. given a big, fat contract to write a book about the Pentagon Papers. He'd never written a book in his life. He didn't know how to start it. He talked to several people. He got completely worthless advice from them. And then suddenly said, you should talk to Stanley Krippner. He really supported what you were doing. And he's written more books than anybody I know. <laughs> Even back then. Even back then. <laughs> You'd so, only written a dozen books at that point so we had a couple of meetings and at my birthday party he announced to the public that i was the one that taught him how to write the pentagon papers yeah i've kept that secret for 40 years yeah yeah and that was beautiful i just gave him very common sense advice and again i'm not going to go into details but it was different advice than what everybody else had given him right and it got him started yeah, and that's the key with a book, is getting started. It's getting started. Once yes, get, it is. Once you get the ball rolling, it's not that hard to keep it going, in my experience. Exactly. But, yeah, that's why interruptions are so tragic in the middle. Of, if you get oh, it going and then you have to you take bet. a week you off bet. to go do something, and oh my God, it's like starting over again. Yeah. 
Um, okay. Any other? Any other big? Uh, I'm I'm just pumping you for the celebrities now. We've got I, microphones. People, we drive by people. They see us sitting here with microphones. They must oh, think we're we're doing karaoke in the car or something. I <laughs> I have seen all of the presidents since Eisenhower. Seen them in person? Yes. Yeah. Wow. I have not since met Eisenhower. most of them. Wow. So whom have you met? Um, I uh, met President Dixon. Really? Because I went to Hello Dolly. I wanted to see Ginger <laughs> Rogers in the role Hello Dolly role. <laughs> Richard and, Nixon was there? And as I was at the uh, stage door, Ginger Rogers and her husband came out, and who should be with them but Richard Dixon and Pat Dixon. Really? Yes. And you're standing there waiting to shake their hand or something? No, oh no, I, I just I just got all of their autographs. <laughs> since I've and I've since since sold them by the way. Oh really? Yeah, to raise money I've and I'm still selling autographs. Okay, well what, what do you have to sell? Let's maybe we have autograph collectors listening in. By the way, anyone who wants to to talk to Stanley about buying any of these autographs can contact me. Yes, you know, at this stage of my life, I've had my fun with the autographs. I might as well pass them on to somebody well. else. I've sold my Maria Callas autograph, which I didn't sell for enough money, but which is uh, beautiful. Which are, well, that's over and done. We can't sell that one again. Right. But I have a wonderful autograph that I got from Leotin Price, huh. who is another opera diva. Right. And... Renata Tobaldi and Beverly Sills and oh. famous opera stars from that era. Right. And also many uh, members of Congress. You can't write in and get an autograph because they just put it through a machine and the machine does the autograph. Right. You have to actually go to their office with the Time magazine cover, which was I did, and give it to their secretary. And their secretary will go in and get the autograph if they're so inclined and bring it out to you. Uh, and they usually have my name on it. So uh, it's, it's, it's a very gracious thing to do, but the time has to be everything. Right. Yeah, I have a wonderful autograph from Lyndon Johnson, but my hunch is it's a machine autograph. Uh, and so I have a lot of senators' autographs, a lot of opera people's autographs, and people can contact me for the complete list or better yet they can be on ebay i have them listed on ebay oh they're on ebay okay yeah so right. go on ebay and you'll find the whole list of them right and uh, did you ever sell your rolling stone collection i sold my rolling stone collection i had rolling stone magazines from the first issue up and uh, sold them all yes as one collection or individually? No, sold them all to one collector. Oh, good. I hope you got a good price for that. I hope so. Um, again, you know, I'm not a specialist. This, if I could haggle and bargain, I probably would do a little bit better. Right. Now, whatever happened with the movie that was being made, there was a documentary being made about your life. Is that... In case there are any documentary filmmakers listening to this. We have the documentary filmmaker. All he needs is the money to uh, uh, do the editing and bring it into existence. So, so you've got the footage? Oh, yeah. We have footage up the kazoo with uh -huh. everybody from Gene Houston to Ram Dass. Right. And it has to be edited to a storyline. Right. And you know, it's going to cost a lot of money to do this. And I'm not a money raiser, so if people want to send money to Saybrook with Stanley Kripner film on it, they can do that. 
Well, maybe we should start a Kickstarter program or something. I like the Kickstarter programs. You know, my goddaughter, uh, Claire O'Connell, has a Kickstarter program. She's a jeweler. She's a young woman who's just out of college, and she does wonderful jewelry. And so she's getting funding to perfect and sell her jewelry and get it publicized through a Kickstarter program. I'm her goddaughter, I mean her godfather, because I introduced her father and mother. Mm. The marriage didn't last very long, but it produced this wonderful young woman. All right, all right. Well, that's fantastic. A Kickstarter program is a good idea, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, maybe we can tie it to the podcast. Anyone who's listened to this podcast episode and the earlier one that you and I did together uh, certainly knows that your life has been incredibly colorful. I mean, my we've been talking for two and a half hours or something, and my regret is we're going to turn off these microphones and you're going to launch into some amazing story. And I'm going to say, wait, turn the microphones oh, back on. Oh, save it for the next one. <laughs> I promise I will not tell you any amazing stories in private. I mean, but, I, you know, people think that I live such an exciting life. Actually, my life is full of very severe pain and tragedy. Hmm. Just, just a few days ago, one of my Saybrook graduates had finished his first book based on his dissertation, and he was driving to Pine Ridge Indian Reservation to give food and blankets to Native Americans. And on the way back, he was caught in a snowstorm, blew the car off the road, and he was killed instantly, just as his career was going to take off. And then, just yesterday, I got a postcard from him. I'm about to leave the Pine Ridge Reservation. I want to get home before the snowstorm starts. And he never did. And so you literally received a postcard yes, from beyond. Yeah, well, you might look at it And that you way. knew he was dead when you I, received the card. Yes, I did. And some of my dearest, closest friends on the Saybrook faculty have died this year. I have had... Well, you know, you get as old as I am, and you outlive a lot of people. Sure. And you still feel the pain when they pass over, especially if their passing is due to some degenerative disease or Alzheimer's or painful cancer or something that's anguishing. Right. Some of my friends simply die in their sleep. Okay, that's a Good blessing. Good for them, yeah. That's a blessing. What do you think? What, you're, you just turned 80 this year, right? Yes, yes. And I've known you since you were probably in your mid-60s, early 60s? Yeah, yes, and probably We've so. known each other a long right, time. Right. What, what uh, if at all, how has your perspective on life, death, reincarnation, all these sort of very deep and profound issues, how has that changed as you've gotten older? Hasn't changed very much. No? I'm still pretty much an agnostic, and I'm, in, I'm willing to entertain all possibilities. I certainly have had messages from the beyond, which make a great deal of sense to me. I have certainly read all of the material on life after death that's come out of the parapsychological studies, some of it very tightly controlled, some of it very, very well done. So all that I can say is one can make a case for life after death. Right. Now, here's the question, the ultimate question. If I knew that there was life after death, would I change the way that I am living? Mm -hmm. Well, 
I try to live my life in a way that helps other people, that manifests love, that manifests what I would call my God-given potentials, whatever God you might believe in. And I would do that if I believed in the afterlife or not. If that is the root of the afterlife, I can't think of a better root. If doing rituals and candles and giving money to the church is the root of the afterlife, I'm not going to get very far. Right. But if you live a life of service, as so many of my friends have done, that have helped people, that have uh, um, that have brought life and love and laughter, the three L's that I believe in, into manifestation, that to me is the root to whatever afterlife there may be. Whether the afterlife is brief before one goes on to another incarnation, whether it's brief before one goes and joins the Godhead or whatever. I'll tell you a funny story about the afterlife though. I was in Brazil taking a group of members of the Institute of Noetic Sciences on a tour and we visited some uh, Brazilian mediums and one of the members of our group was paying an English medium a thousand dollars a month to get messages from her son who died tragically at a very very young age and a Brazilian medium who was a very young medium said well she wanted him to contact the son and we went up to the roof of the hotel and he closed his eyes and as he closed his eyes he said, yes I found your son and your son is saying please have your mother stop trying to contact me this medium in England keeps interrupting what I'm doing I'm happy in the other world I'm making friends I'm preparing for my next incarnation I'm perfecting my spirituality and this woman in England keeps intruding to get messages from me and I give her something just to keep her happy so please stop sending her money and at that moment there was a shooting star that came right through the sky wow I said, that is your that seals the bargain wow that's... That ended the gifts of the medium in England. <laughs> I'm surprised there's not some sort of professional malpractice, uh, you know, rules against one medium saying, uh, oh, yeah, your your loved one says stop paying money to mediums. The Brazilian uh, medium didn't charge a penny for it. That's beautiful. That's a good story. All right. Let's end on that story. And I'm sure if the sky were dark, we'd see a shooting star right about now. We're we're uh, hitting a lot of traffic as we approach L.A., so it's probably a good time for me to pay more attention to this. Yes, please do. <laughs> well, the most famous medium of the 20th century was Eileen Garrett. Eileen Garrett was a close friend of mine. Of course, I met her through my parapsychological work. And she invited me to a conference in southern France. And... She was always eager to work with parapsychologists and do demonstrations. And so I had a one of our volunteers at the Dream Lab, not Charles Grobe, but another young friend who has since gone on to become very, very famous. And I said, get a picture and put it in an envelope and put the envelope in a second envelope. Give it to me and don't tell me what's in it. Okay, he did that. We get to France, and 
when the time comes for her demonstration, another person gives her the two envelopes. She double sealed so she could hold them up to her head and peek. Of course, the envelopes were opaque, but mm. you never want to take any chances. And they were still sealed because they had only been in the possession of the person who had been holding them. And she said, well, there's a picture in the envelope and I can see a man on his knees under a very ornate light fixture. It's a very colorful picture. Now, the photograph that my volunteer had selected was a photograph from the mosque in Washington, D.C. And it shows a Muslim man in prayer underneath a very ornate chandelier. Wow. So that was a pretty good portrayal. That's pretty good. And then she says, but the person who owns, who put the picture in the envelope interests me more than the picture. He is a young man, dark hair, medium height, sort of thin. She gave a perfect description of the guy who had put the picture in the envelope. And there's going to be a new member of his family before the end of the year. And he's going to be in the news before the end of the year. Two very specific predictions. He, but the person who owns the envelope interests me more than anything else <laughs> because he's somebody like our own Dr. Krippner who is with us today. Whoa, really? Who has taken a chance on people like me who other people would call crazy. Remember, she's it's not her talking, it's the spirits talking oh, through right, her. Oh, right, right. And I respect him for going out on a limb and endangering his profession, his scientific standing, to do this important work. Yeah. Okay, so she had three hits in a row. Yeah. I get back to the United States, I talk to the volunteer, and he said, well, when you were gone, there was a button contest. This was in the 1960s when there were a lot of buttons on people's lapels. Peace buttons, stop the war buttons, flower buttons, etc. And he designed a button called Ignore This Button that won first prize, and he was on the front page of the New York newspapers as the winner of the button contest. <laughs> prediction number one came true. The news, right. I said, the other prediction is that there will be an extra member of your family before the end of the year. And I know it can't be you and your girlfriend because you use safe sex. And he was in shock. He said, you know, my sister's expecting a baby. Nobody else knows this outside of the family but her and her husband. But the baby is not due till early January. Uh -huh. I said, get prepared for a December birth. <laughs> the baby was born December 30th. Really? And he had not told her about it. So she didn't push things along to fulfill the prediction. All right. Well, Eileen Garrett had numerous such hits, and whole books have been written by her and about her. And on another visit to southern France with a different type of experiment, we brought along some photographic film, and we were going to see if she could expose the film um, by mental energy alone. And she was with Douglas Johnson, who was a very highly respected medium from England, and I thought that they would put the film to their forehead and beam the energy for their forehead. Douglas Johnson put the film right down to his crotch, and Island <laughs> Garrett put the film right onto her breast. Really? 
They said, that's where the energy is. It's erotic energy. Yes, yes. Uh -huh. And then we got some foggy stuff on the film. It wasn't very distinct, but it was fog. So, um, again, you know, Eileen was very, very cooperative. And she was actually the very first subject in our dream telepathy studies when we were just trying out the technique. And we had a electroencephalograph set up and she allowed herself to be hooked up with all the wires and so the rapid eye movements could be charted. And she came up, well, she didn't sleep very well, but she did have sort of a dream which was really more like a hypnagogic image. It was of a chariot race. And she says, there's a team of white horses, a team of black horses, and they're running against each other. And the team of white horses is just barely winning the race. This reminds me of the new movie, Ben-Hur, which just came out. I would literally like to see that movie. Well, what was the picture in the sealed envelope? It was a glossy still from the movie Ben-Hur really? of the chariot race. Wow. Nobody else during the 10 years of our studies ever hit the nail on the head as well as she did. Huh. And these studies are described in, in which book? Well, they're, they're described, described in the book many. Dream Telepathy, Dream which you telepathy. get through Amazon.com. Right. And you, they're described briefly in a number of my other books. I have a book out that I edited with Debbie Ellis, the wife of Albert Ellis, called Perchance to Dream. It costs a fortune, unfortunately. You can only get it on Amazon.com. But there's a whole chapter on dream telepathy studies, not only ours, but the studies that were designed to replicate what we did at Maimonides. Right. And we did have a fairly good rate of replication, and there's another replication going on right now. Do you, uh, you're familiar with Daryl Bem's work, Oh, right? yeah, sure. Yeah. What do you think about his work in, in uh, precognitive phenomena? The nice thing about his work is so simple that other people can repeat it. Right. And, of course, basically, he has people uh, exposed to a device which gets a physiological response before they unconsciously see a picture. Right. It flashes pictures of, of kittens and puppies and, and happy things and then randomly interspersed among them are photos of, of a, a snarling dog or a snake striking or something exactly. startling and people are hooked up to uh, essentially like a lie detector machine, right? That's right. It measures skin conductivity and uh, heart rate and um, blood pressure yeah. and, and what they found is that these physiological signs uh, are triggered n nanoseconds before the image is shown right. so that somehow people are sensing the image that isn't yet visible and they're reacting to it physiologically that's correct so his hypothesis if i remember correctly is that there's some sort of like a field like time I don't know how to uh, you describe it better than me I'm sure that that some somehow the effects of the photograph are entering this person's field before the photograph itself does exactly you know that's a good explanation for a lay audience you did it much better than I could have I would have given a more technical explanation 
But that's exactly what he did. And he repeated the experiment half a dozen times before he published it. Right. It and came, it's been replicated around the world. Is that right? It has been replicated, but not always successfully. Oh, okay. It has been replicated successfully and unsuccessfully. And James Alcock, who's one of the contributors to our book, Debating Psychic Experience, wrote an excoriating critical article about it for the magazine Skeptical Inquirer, which I read faithfully every month because I don't always agree with what they say about parapsychology, but I do agree with what they say about the critics of global warming and what they say about organized religion. So (laughs) I think that the magazine serves a useful purpose. So I've known Daryl Bem. He's a good experimenter. He's a very honest and reliable person. And in fairness all the way around, I think I'd have to say the jury is still out. Right. But it's a simple enough experiment so that any laboratory that has simple equipment can do it. And you know Rupert Sheldrake? Yes. Do you know he? Do you know uh, Graham Hancock? Yes. Oh, really? I know of him. I don't oh. know him personally. He and Rupert Sheldrake recently gave uh, talks at a TEDx conference sure did. in England. You know? Oh, that's you sent me an email about that that's actually. Right. Yeah, yeah, that caused some uh, consternation. That's the one thing that Ted vetoed. Yeah. Well, they pulled it down. They pulled down the talks because their anonymous panel of scientific experts said that they were pseudoscience. And then, oh, there's a nor going by an accident up here. Pretty. Oh, what a shame. Pretty look at bad that. one. Oh, that is very bad. It doesn't, oh, well, yeah, it that, look like that oh. black car flipped. That's that, black car, that black car flipped. What a shame. It's too late to know if anybody was hurt or not, but a very bad accident. Like I say, life is short. You never know when the bell tolls for you or for me or for anybody else. Well, I thought you and I were going to bite the dust in Morocco a few years ago. Oh my God, isn't it the truth? Oh, (laughs) that was a horror story. We had the worst driver in the world. (laughs) That guy was such a crazy driver that, didn't we get pulled over by police at one point? We sure did. And he was arguing with the policeman in Arabic, gesturing to the back seat, saying, you know, I have the world famous Dr. Krippner, you can't do anything to me. And I was thinking, please, just take this guy to prison. Please save our lives. I know. Huh. I I bailed. Remember, I said I had friends in America. For good reason, you bailed. Was, we were on our way to to Fez, I think, that day, and I I just couldn't take it. He was passing cars on blind oh. turns and just doing all this craziness. And I remember we got to the outskirts of Marrakesh, and I said, "Hey, you know what? I've I got some friends in Marrakesh. I want to catch up with." So you can just leave me here. And he was like, what do you mean you have friends in Marrakesh? Well, he was one of my Saybrook students, so what could I do? And he paid my way. And I remember writing, you and I were in the back seat, and I wrote a, a note on paper saying, you know, I'm going to say I have friends. Let's get off. And, you, you know, you want to come see my friends, and we'll see him in Fez. And you just wrote back, no, I'm committed. I'll, you know, I'll accept my fate, whatever it is. I know. I, I live up to my commitments for better or for worse, sometimes for the worse. <laughs> well, we got I got through that one safe and sound, but that was a real, real scare. That was, was that was one of one of the funnier trips that we took together. The idea there was that this student wanted uh, Stanley to 
What? what to, to so this is a sheikh who could manifest jinns. Right. He wanted you to understand Arabic mysticism yes, or something right, like that. Right. Or, and this guy was, let's see, he's Palestinian. And yes. he wa he wanted to take you around Morocco, right? And we showed up, and you asked to, for me to come along, which he agreed to. And then we showed up at the airport, and he was there with his wife, which we didn't know his wife was going to be there. No, we did. And then it was very awkward because I think I tried to shake her hand or kiss her or something, oh. and I was and it was like, oh, you can't touch my wife. No, Don't, no, uh, that's anathema. Yeah. It's a, it's a, you know, just a few miles from Spain to Morocco, but right. it's a world away. And I didn't, I didn't, I knew enough not even to look her directly in the eyes. <laughs> yeah, and then, so then we're, I don't remember how long that was, a week or ten days or so that we were cruising around Morocco. And this guy kept, you know, we'd get to some town and he'd run around and try to find the local sheikh. But we quickly realized that his Arabic was extremely different from the Arabic they were speaking in Morocco. And he couldn't really understand what people were saying and vice versa. And we did visit six sheikhs and each of them had a pretty good excuse on why they could not manifest a jinn. Or why it would cost several thousand dollars That's for them right. to manifest the gin. I remember some of them saying, oh yeah, sure, sure, the spirit of the desert, no problem, $5,000, I, I can do that. And we actually wrote up a nice article about that called Looking for Gins on the Road to Morocco. Well, as I recall, you wrote up a nice article about it and, and generously stuck my name on it somewhere, which you did a lot of times. I, I must. I remember in that trip in, in Brazil, the first trip we took together, do you remember the Kariri Shoko people? Oh, yeah, sure. Who explained their, their spirits, some of the spirit world. We spent an afternoon with them and... You were taking notes. I think I took notes as well. And you did. then we got back to the house and you said, okay. And I was the grad student, so it's my job to at least get a rough draft done. And, you know, so you're going to have to write this up and, you know, I'll, I'll get it published here or there. And I thought, oh, my, what a great opportunity for me to get something published and, you know, get my name out there and yada, yada, yada. And I thought, okay, well, let's see, we'll be back. At, I'll be back at school in a month, and it'll only take me a month or two to write this up. And so by maybe March, I'll get this into Stanley. I mean, I woke up the next morning, and you had already written the article. I don't know when you did it. If you, you slept half the night or I don't know. But it was done. I was thinking three months down the road and you were like, oh, yeah, here it is. Yes. You know, take a look. See if you want to add anything. You hit me at a good time. As soon as I got it, I got to work on it and finished up the article, sent it off. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're an extremely efficient writer. I, that's one of the things I learned from you is how to recycle material and apply it in different articles and in different angles and not not exactly the same material certainly not plagiarizing or anything like that but using some of the same thinking in different contexts as a way to maximize the exposure uh, of the ideas. That maximizes exposure because so many of the journals I write for have maybe a couple of hundred readers. Right. So why not use that material for another journal that has a couple of thousand readers? Right. Again, writing it up in a different way with a different emphasis. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, that's just smart writing. 
Well, listen, Stanley, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, again, people who want to know more about your work and your career, your life, Stanley Krippner, uh, what is it, Weebly? Yes, Weebly. Weebly, W-E-E-B-L-Y. Yes. Uh, but just Google Stanley Krippner and you'll see his website. It'll pop up right away. And go right out and buy uh, The Voice of Rolling Thunder by the voice, Krippner. Yeah, The Voice of Rolling Thunder. That's the book we've been talking about most today. And it's one of your most recent books, and it's excellent. I've I've read. Uh, I think I read it in the in the galleys you when did. yeah did, yes. yeah it's a wonderful story, and uh, of course. If you haven't heard it already, Stanley, by the time you hear this, will have been on the Joe Rogan experience. Uh, I'm driving him to L.A. right now. We're going to do that. He's going to do that show tomorrow, and that'll be up. So that'll already be up by the time you hear this. And uh, I'm sure Stanley and Joe will have lots to talk about. That's going to be a very interesting conversation. And uh, you can follow me at Chris Ryan PhD on Twitter. Or uh, you can check out my website, chrisryanphd.com. Thanks, and see you soon. He said, baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you. Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you ever know Said it for a headstone Soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up Or give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Think about an obligation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say Smoke alarms will dance into the ground.